Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Uh, Ranking Member Menendez mentioned he's going to be just a minute late for us to go ahead and get started. We thank our witnesses and all of you for being here. Um, we're going to consider the implications of recent trade actions by the administration, including the implementation of tariffs on steel and aluminum imports from Canada, Mexico, and the European Union. I do not think it will become as a big surprise to anyone here that I'm very concerned about the President's trade policies, and I think we all should be. From the imposition of tariffs on, by abusing uh, Section 232 of the, the 232 authorities to threats to withdraw from longstanding trade agreements such as NAFTA, these actions are hurting our business and farm communities all around the country. They're damaging our international relationships that we have spent decades building, casting doubt on the United States uh, and our role as a global leader and a reliable partner. The tariffs imposed on imported steel and aluminum under, under Section 232 are already disrupting and damaging supply chains and business plans of numerous American businesses. These artificial distortions will continue to have real-world effects, including the possibility that many Americans could and will lose their jobs. Many of our companies risk losing markets carefully developed and cultivated over years uh, to their foreign competitors. And now we await the outcome of another 232 investigation initiated by the press when this president, this one to determine if foreign auto imports threaten our national security. Uh, don't get me wrong, we do have significant trade challenges when it comes to China. And while we all agree on the need to ensure the international trade system is fair to American workers, companies, and consumers, I believe we should focus on building coalitions to confront long-stranding threats such as Chinese theft of intellectual property instead of imposing 232 tariffs on our friends. Instead, these actions are alienating our close friends and allies such as Canada, Japan, and Europe, partners we rely upon for far more than just economic security. The President has said that trade wars are winnable. Whether we win or lose, there is certain to be collateral damage to U.S. citizens and businesses along the way, as well as our place in the world. The administration needs to explain to Congress where this is all headed. I, I know many members have been over to meet with the President to talk about where this is headed. To my knowledge, not a single person is able to articulate uh, where this is headed, nor what the plans are, nor what the strategy is. It seems to be a wake up, ready, fire, aim strategy. So they need to explain to us where this is going. The disruptions and costs of these tariffs are clear. How and when it does end, will we be better off as a result? The Constitution clearly establishes the power to collect duties and the power to regulate foreign commerce with Congress. We're holding this hearing today because of the vital need for con congressional oversight on these actions. I've offered bipartisan legislation with Senators Flake, Johnson, Isaacson, Shaheen, and others on this committee for Congress to reclaim its appropriate role and responsibility with respect to setting tariff policy. The bill has attracted wide-ranging support from organizations representing business and agriculture across our country with an overwhelming vote of support for those efforts yesterday in the Senate. We will continue to push for a binding vote on this legislation in the near future. Uh, we thank our witnesses for being here today. Let me go ahead and introduce our witness.
Our first witness is Manisha Singh, Assistant Secretary of State for the Economic and Business for Economic and Business Affairs. In this role, she is responsible for advancing American prosperity, entrepreneurship, and innovation worldwide. We thank you for being here. I would not want to be in your position today, but you're gladly here to do so. And uh, we look forward especially to our private panel that will come up after without some of the same relationships. But with it, uh, with that, if you would give your testimony in about five minutes, uh, any written documents you have without objection will be entered into the record. Again, we thank you for your service. Do you want to make an opening comment? Uh, if you have a moment, I do. I want you to get a cup of coffee and take a deep breath. And Giving, give an opening comment. These days, Mr. President, deep, uh, Mr. President, I wish. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Chairman, <laughs> I hope that doesn't get you. Recently, I've been feeling the same way, honestly. I, I hope that doesn't get you into trouble, but in any event, uh, I, I've had a deep breath is not enough uh, these days. So, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you uh, for calling a, a very timely hearing. Over the past few months, we have watched the President impose a series of trade measures against our allies and adversaries alike, seemingly without considering the impact of these actions could have on important strategic partnerships. I appreciate that your legislation, Mr. Chairman, addresses this issue. And although you and I may have different views about some of our existing and proposed trade agreements, uh, the recent vote on the Senate floor shows strong bipartisan support for pushing back on what I believe is the President's disruptive action. We have witnessed more of this action on display as he's meeting with our NATO allies this week, arguably our most important partners in creating and sustaining critical agreements that keep our nation and our citizens secure. His erratic actions coupled with his denigrating remarks do not inspire confidence. As it relates to the subject of this hearing, I believe that decades of unfair trading practices have left American workers, businesses, and families hard hit. It's critical that we strategically assess the real challenges and threats to America workers. Recent economic analysis has again revealed how China's economic rise over the last generation has severely damaged some of America's hardest working people in their communities. China has driven global overcapacity in steel and aluminum, a problem that the rest of the world shares with us. We must indeed go after China's uh, subsidization of these materials and their dumping onto the global market which has shuttered factories across our country and put too, Amer too many Americans out of work. Separately, as many of my constituents in New Jersey know too well, we must also aggressively go after China's expropriation and outright theft of our patents and copyrights. American families don't need spreadsheet analysis to know the impl economic implications. These actions are real. So now, following the Section 301 investigation into China's policies on technology transfer and intellectual property, the administration must take action to reverse the damage done to U.S. workers and companies. Success, however, will require more than a never-ending escalation of tariffs. To support hardworking Americans, we need a strategic coordinated response from all countries that China's predatory practices have disadvantaged. Sadly, the administration has begun a reckless campaign against our allies, driving them into the arms of our adversaries instead of leading a joint effort to address the serious challenges of China's economic policies. As the NATO summit this week in Brussels reminds us, United States leadership in the world, our ability to meet the full range of global economic, environmental, health, and security challenges we face requires sustainable, trustworthy par uh, partnerships. Whether confronting Russia's disruption of democratic institutions here and among our European allies, 
working with our Latin American neighbors to cope with the instability driving families from their homes or responding to China's aggressive moves in the South China Sea, we're stronger with the alliances built on shared history and values. But remarkably, Mr. Chairman, the President saves his harshest words for our allies who fight alongside us in the fields of Afghanistan, alongside us in the fight for freedom and democracy against Russian aggression, and who are on the front lines of Chinese economic imperialism in our own hemisphere. So uh, I look forward to, to um, our witnesses. I hope the hearing will help illuminate the administration's confusing flurry of tariffs and trade restrictions. I hope we can agree on who our friends are and who our adversaries are, which are the right tools and the right priorities. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I look forward to the hearing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Madam Secretary, if you'd begin, we'd appreciate it. Thank you. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, and members of the committee, Thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today regarding tariff implications for U.S. foreign policy and the international economy. The department is grateful for the partnership we have with the members of this committee and with your staffs. The Trump administration is committed to ensuring that American workers, farmers, and companies have every opportunity to compete and succeed in the global arena. We look forward to continuing to work with you on this common goal. President Trump's national security strategy declares that economic security is national security. We are working to safeguard both economic security and economic prosperity for the American people. In addition to the dedicated officers here in Washington, the State Department has over 1,500 economic officers posted in embassies and consulates around the world who explain our policies to foreign governments and enlist their support of our goals. Our ambassadors and senior officials meet with foreign leaders to discuss our mutual priorities. They also advocate directly for U.S. companies. The department works in coordination with our colleagues at USTR, Commerce, and other agencies to ensure that we are in close contact with our allies to explain the administration's trade and economic policies. We have heard some concerns and questions from our allies and trading partners, and we have engaged with them proactively on a regular basis. We have made addressing their concerns about our international trade policy a part of our larger conversation with them. The Department is clear with our allies that we continue to have shared interest with countries around the world, from countering terrorism to the denuclearization of North Korea. We emphasize that our combined efforts are required to make the world a more just, safe, and prosperous place. A key area in which our allies and partners share our frustration is responding to the challenge of China's economic aggression. We are building an international coalition to address China's state-led policies which distort markets, discriminate against international competition, force technology transfer, and permit theft of sensitive intellectual property. The department is committed to utilizing all available tools to increase economic security promote greater opportunity, and build constructive global relationships. 
We are also working to attract foreign direct investment, greenfield investment, which will benefit our workers. Last month, Secretary Pompeo joined four other cabinet secretaries and 15 of our ambassadors to welcome international businesses to the Select USA Summit and emphasized the President's message that America is open for business. Under the leadership of Secretary Pompeo, we are focused on American economic diplomacy in the interest of the American people. Thank you again for holding this very important hearing. I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you. I might just ask a few and then uh, reserve the rest of my time, but do you have any idea what the uh, strategy is relative to using 232 to put tariffs on our European partners uh, and Canada and Mexico? Can you articulate how that helps us build a coalition to counter what you mentioned in your opening comments, which is China's abuse uh, and theft of intellectual property? Thank you, Senator Corker. President Trump has determined that the 232 actions are necessary to preserve the vitality of our domestic industries. I've received questions about why it is that we are focused on China or the EU or other of our allies. However, the 232 initiative was not targeted at any particular country. It was instituted on a global basis to address steel and aluminum overcapacity. Um, the 232 statute specifically indicates that the viability of our domestic industries to be able to supply needs for our defense industrial base, for our critical in infrastructure, do constitute national security threats under this legislation. So Canada is a threat to us from a national security standpoint. Don't we ship more steel to them than they ship to us? Well, Senator, Canada is not a national security threat. However, the global steel and aluminum overcapacity that currently exists in the marketplace is affecting our ability, our, the ability of our domestic companies to adequately produce aluminum and steel. The viability of these industries does constitute a national security issue for us. I'm going to likely reserve my time for the second panel. Go ahead, sir. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. So you just said that Canada is not a national security threat. Uh, did I hear you right? Yes, Senator. Well, but Section 232 is that the President has invoked, actually, has to sustain that Canada is a national security threat. So if it's not a national security threat, how is the President using Section 232? Um, well, thank you, Senator, for that question. Um, as, as I indicated previously, Section 232, the language indicates that the competitive viability of our domestic industries is needed in order to maintain national security. In addition, it states that a weakened economy inhibits our ability to maintain our defense, industry, our defense capabilities. And so therefore, under 232, the President has determined that this global steel and aluminum overcapacity does really? con impair our national really? security. Really? Does, does Canada present a greater national security threat than China? Senator, China is considered our, our largest threat, and to that end, uh, the President has instituted very tough measures um, to protect our intellectual property, to protect our innovation, to prevent the Chinese from imposing unfair trade practices, from distorting markets. Does, does Canada have a defense production sharing agreement with the United States? 
I'm not aware of if we do or not. The Senator, answer is yes. It has a defense production sharing agreement with the United States, yet we say that it's a national security threat, while at the same time that they're in the midst of producing defense elements with us. Do you believe our allies are going to be more or less likely to join us in a coordinated action against China when they see the administration being tougher on allies like Canada than China? Well, Senator, thank you for that question. Our, our allies and partners share our frustration about China's economic coercion. Um, and I personally have had many conversations with, with allies all over the world about cooperating against the Chinese economic threat. They are as concerned about China as we are. Yes, the problem is, is that instead of building a coalition that was willing and wanting to confront China through the international forums that we could execute through, we attack them. We attack them. So what's the administration's strategy to respond to China's escalating retaliation and bring them to the negotiating table to deal with underlying issues? More escalation? I mean, I don't understand what is the pathway here at the end of the day. So we slap a series of tariffs on them. They reciprocate and retaliate and, and, and uh, add tariffs to us. Where, where is the end game here? Well, Senator, thank you for that question. It's an important one. Our end game is for China to change its behavior. We want to demonstrate to China that we are willing to take strong measures to force China to change its behavior, which distorts markets, which has contributed Madam to- Madam Secretary, I know, I don't mean to interrupt you. My time is limited. I, we, we share the end game. The question is, what's the strategy to get there? Tariffs, uh, slapped in, a, in, a, in the action that the president has done, again gets retaliatory tariffs. And then the president retaliates against those tariffs. And then China says they'll retaliate against those tariffs. Tell me, what is the strategy at the end of the day to achieve the goal that you just enunciated? Well, Senator, President Trump has determined that tariffs are the most effective means to achieve this goal. For the last several decades, we have been having many conversations with the Chinese. You'll recall our economic dialogues in which we tried to make progress, and this problem has not been solved. So President Trump has determined that tariffs are the way, uh, tariffs are the right tool to be used in this situation to get the Chinese to change their behavior. We need to see real action on the part of the Chinese, not just the ongoing conversations that they keep having with us. Well, listen, uh, Madam Secretary, I, I, I regret that you were sent here because I don't think that you're really in the mix here uh, on this issue. And you're sent here as cannon fodder at the end of the day, which is really uh, a, a, a challenge. Uh, so, but the, the problem is I have heard no strategy whatsoever that suggests uh, how this is going to end up. I don't even know how we're using 232 to gain leverage on other issues. Uh, for example, uh, a July 8th New York Times article reported uh, that the State Department threatened Ecuador with punitive trade measures if it refused to drop a resolution on breastfeeding at the World Health Organization, which I asked the article be entered into the record, Mr. Chairman. H how is it that we're using Section 232 on something like that? Well, Senator, um, I'm aware of the breastfeeding resolution, and that media report was false. The department has confirmed that that was a, a false report. That so, is so you're not using 232 as it relates to anything other than national security concerns? Well, we're using 232 
so that we can give our domestic steel and aluminum producers the ability to um, re uh, regain their <coughs> industries. We want the domestic industries to have, be able to have the capacity to supply needs for our critical infrastructure for our defense needs. Um, uh, 232 specifically states that the viability of domestic industries is in the interest of national security. Well, we're, we're all for uh, helping the steel industry uh, and in the United States, but the manner in which you're, you're, this administration is going about it uh, is going to have huge consequences for middle America, for middle class families, uh, for rising costs, for farmers in the country, and for lost jobs. And so at the end of the day, you, I think you're going to wreak more havoc than you are going to create the result you want. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I, I would just state that we produce 75% of the steel, I think, that we use in this nation. And our defense industry only uses 3%. I'm really saddened that you uh, are the person that's up here today. I think we all like working with you. And I know that uh, because you, you do a good job in the areas that you really spend most of your time, I would just ask the committee members that we do have a second panel that I think might ask, might be able to answer questions in a little bit different way. You are going to be cannon fodder this morning, and I don't think you're really prepared to defend the policies in an appropriate manner. So what I would say to people is, is if you have a question, I know some of you do, let's ask them, but maybe not use the entire five minutes so we can move on to a panel. But anybody that wishes to do that is more than welcome uh, to do so. Senator Johnson. Well, just quickly, just basic data. So again, we want to increase the number of tons of steel we produce. Uh, are there goals in terms of number of tons that we're looking for? Are there goals in terms of number of jobs? Well, well, Senator, I don't know that there are specific numeric goals. I think that the interagency analysis okay, that was... Okay, that's, that's, you answered the question then. Um, back when uh, President Bush did this, there was a study that showed for a few thousand steel jobs when he slapped on steel tariffs, we lost about 200,000 jobs. Is that a study that uh, in those types of uh, considerations, have they, have, been, have they been taken into account? Well, I'm not aware of that study in particular, but I know that my colleagues at USTR and the Department of Commerce have done economic modeling and economic analysis to advise the president on their recommendation that the 232 investigations be conducted and the tariffs be implemented. Are you tracking right now what's, how steel prices have increased in uh, the U.S.? You know, what percent uh, we've, we've recognized? No, sir, I'm not tracking them. Uh, we're hearing somewhere between 30 and 40 percent. You put on a 25 percent tariff and now domestic producers are realizing 30 to 40 percent gains. You do realize how that makes them uncompetitive in the world mar markets, correct? Yes, sir. Um, earlier, we heard that there are 30,000 some waivers being requested to the Commerce Department. Is that, is that roughly the number of waivers you've received? I, I believe the number I saw was 20,000, something in that nature. Okay. Um, how are we going to possibly respond to that? And does it make good economic sense to have a few commissars in the Commerce Department picking who's going to be able to survive and who's not going to be able to survive in industry? I, I literally, we, we had a, a woman build a business uh, supplying trucking industry. She said in three months she'll be out of business. I mean, are, we, are we really taking into account? I've heard the administration say some short-term pain for long-term gain. Are we really taking into account the permanent damage that's being done right now? 
Well, Senator, um, the goal of the Commerce Department and USTR in instituting these actions, again, is to increase the viability of, of our domestic industries. You know, of we steel, would like to steel. see uh, correct of steel and aluminum, and we would like to see everyone succeed. We would like these industries to be at a level with, where they can start hiring people again, where they can create more American jobs. Okay, we have to look at the steel using industries. We have a lot of them in Wisconsin. They are really worried. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Before I turn to uh, that Senator Kane. How are they deciding on these exclusions? Are they looking at who made political contributions to the administration when they're running? I mean, this is pretty worrisome that you've got a couple of folks deciding on who's going to be excluded from these tariffs. Uh, there's no criteria that's been laid out. There's no transparency that's been given. How should we feel comfortable uh, about how these, there were 20,000 three weeks ago. I got to believe the number that Ron laid out is probably closer to where we are today. But do you know anything about the process of how we're granting exclusions uh, to people throughout our country, picking winners and losers? Well, well, Senator, at the end of the day, we would like to see all American, American workers come out as winners in this situation. Uh, Secretary Ross did testify before the Senate Finance Committee last month, and he discussed extensively the process. He mentioned the transparent public hearing and comment period before the tariffs are instituted, and then he described the exclusion process through which U.S. companies can apply. Okay. Um, it is being done on an objective basis. The Commerce Department does have economic models. I, I, I watched the excerpts of the hearing. I don't think he was near that clear, but with that, Senator Kane. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, and I associate myself with a number of the comments that colleagues have made. Um, just talk about Virginia, the effect in Virginia of the aluminum and steel uh, tariffs and the retaliation imposed as a result. I was at a farmer's market in Halifax County, rural southern Virginia over the weekend, and soybean farmers were coming to me to complain about the s significant damage that they are now suffering under because of retaliatory tariffs taken in response to President Trump's actions. Yesterday, my poultry industry in the Shenandoah Valley and the Eastern Shore came in to talk to me. I mentioned Senator Coons has had these conversations as well. Uh, they are being significantly affected by the retaliation uh, by China and other nations. And then um, I got one right here, Catoctin Creek uh, rye uh, whiskey. This is a tiny little Virginia distillery in Purcellville, which is in Loudoun County, and they are small, 10 employees. They make rye, whiskey, gin, and brandy. In the last five years, they've spent $100,000 to expand in Europe. In Europe, American whiskey is really popular. This tiny company, I'm sorry, they employ 20 people, have, has had some real significant success in starting to sell Catoctin Creek in Germany, Italy, Holland, and the UK. But after the steel and aluminum tariffs went into effect, the EU retaliated with equivalent tariffs on whiskey, an additional 25% tariff. The founder of the company, Scott Harris, said, we're just launching into the European market now in a big way, and this is the worst possible timing for us. We're probably going to see all of our European sales come to a screeching halt. Uh, we talk about a trade war, and the question is, who is it against? And in Virginia, it seems it's against farmers and workers. Um, and actually, the national stats would suggest this, and Mr. Chairman asked to put a version of this into the record. This is from a recent Washington Post article that pulled trade data. This is just the effect of the steel and aluminum tariffs and the retaliation of it, not other 
tariffs and trade wars that the administration is starting. The projection is that over the next three years, 30,000 jobs would be gained in American industries because of these steel and aluminum tariffs, largely in industries that make steel and aluminum. But 430,000 jobs will be lost in a whole set of industries for a net job loss of 400,000 uh, jobs to manufacturers and uh, agricultural workers. This is what we're dealing with just on the aluminum and steel tariffs this morning. There's another announcement about an additional $200 billion of tariffs that are going to be uh, imposed on China, and they will retaliate in kind. This is hitting Virginians very hard, hitting Americans very hard. Uh, Mr. Chair, I appreciate you and others who uh, positioned that vote yesterday. It won't surprise anybody on this panel. I don't think we should ever be at war without a vote of Congress, and I don't think we should be at a trade war without a vote of Congress. Congress has to approve trade deals. I think Congress should have to approve trade wars, and I don't think the President, except in very tightly defined circumstances, should be able to unilaterally get us into a trade war that hits American and Virginia workers to this degree. I have a question for you, and it really goes into the strategy question, what's the end game? In addition to all of the effort that's being undertaken by an administration on the imposition of tariffs without explanation to us of a strategy, the administration is also acting in a significant way to undercut the World Trade Organization. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, Trump puts the WTO on the ropes, President sows crisis by invoking national security for tariffs and blocking trade judge appointments. The administration's decision to block appointments to the appeals judges on the WTO mean that American companies, if they want to challenge unfair trade practices of other nations, may have a hard time being able to get an appeal heard. What possibly, what possibly could be a justification for the administration trying to block appointments to the WTO appeals panel? I view that as hurting American companies. What is the justification for it? Well, thank you, Senator, for that question. Um, the administration isn't actually trying to block these appointments. What we're trying to do is make sure that these WTO appellate judges have are, are acting within their mandates, are held accountable. There is concern that these appointed judges are exceeding their responsibilities. There's no accountability for them. Our United States trade representative wants to look at WTO reform. As part of the president's overall trade strategy, we would like to reform the multilateral trading system overall so that it works better for the American people and for American companies. Does it help American companies if they are not able to have their cases heard when they want to have, uh, when they want to allege an unfair trade practice by another nation? Senator, I think it's in the interest of all American companies that re we reform the multilateral trading system in a manner so that it works best for American workers and American companies. I'll have follow-up questions for the record. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Senator Yao. Thank you, Chairman. Ms. Singe, uh, thank you so much for being here. In your prepared statement, uh, you uh, note uh, Beijing's use of intellectual property theft, forced technology transfer, uh, overproduction, and thus market distortion on account of state-owned enterprises and other anti-competitive behaviors, uh, behaviors by Beijing. Over two months ago, I convened a Senate Foreign Relations Committee subcommittee hearing on predatory international economic practices. For those who are observing this hearing, I, I would ask you to review the testimony. There, there, and there are a lot of answers there about particular tactics we might employ that we aren't employing to help uh, bring 
China and others who engage in these practices uh, into good behavior. It's clear to me that China is more of a threat comparatively to other countries who are engaging in these econ e uh, economic predatory practices because of the scope, the nature, um, and uh, the consequences of their behavior. In your prepared remarks, uh, you indicate uh, you're building an international coalition, uh, along with other stakeholders within government, to address this economic ag aggression by China. Um, do you agree that an optimal response is to unite allies, to unite partners who've also suffered because of Beijing's uh, predatory international uh, economic practices, and thus allow us to leverage our collective weight against Beijing, as opposed to sort of going it alone? Yes, Senator, I agree with that. We need to build support, and we are building support among our, amongst our allies. Well, Winston Churchill reportedly said, there's only one thing worse than fighting with allies, and it's fighting without them. I agree with you. Um, would you agree that the international coalition that uh, uh, we need to assemble to address China's economic aggression should ideally include, at a minimum, the G7 countries? Well, Senator, we are trying to work with countries um, in all regions of the world because all regions, including the Western Hemisphere, the EU, Southeast Asia, everyone is suffering the effects of China's economic aggression of their distortion of markets. So I would say that we should look to allies all over the world, including the G7. Okay. There's a lot of questions as to whether or not we're doing that. Um, we need a strategy. We've heard that time and again here. Uh, starting, what, what are our objectives? What's the end game? What are our threats to accomplishing those objectives? What means do we have at our disposal right now? What resources are at our disposal? What authorities in order uh, to clear away those threats, in order to advance those objectives? What new authorities or resources are required? That is a strategy, very methodically put together. It's not clear to me that one exists. Now, do you believe that Congress should be a fully informed partner in developing and implementing our nation's response to China and others' predatory international economic practices? Well, yes, Senator, that's one of the reasons I'm here, is I was hoping to have a conversation uh, that better informed the administration on Congress's views and how we can better work together to combat China's economic aggression. We said earlier that uh, the USTR, Commerce, and others are, are sharing our policies with allies. I don't believe there's been sufficient sharing with Congress. In fact, I believe the administration needs to do a better job in explaining its trade strategy to Congress. I don't know that a forum like this, frankly, is, is conducive to eliciting a detailed strategy. I also believe that a response to Beijing's economic aggression, in order to be sustainable, is going to require the buy-in of Congress and thus the American people. So, um, you know, I tried to be productive over the weeks and months as this whole situation uh, has played out, and increasingly farmers from Indiana, manufacturers, workers, and others, their anxiety is heightening, I have to say, and I put out a solution, a bipartisan National Economic Security Strategy Act of 2018. Um, this is, has the support of Senators Merkley, Rubio, Coons, Senator Gardner is now on board. It would create a statutory requirement for the periodic production and submission to Congress of a national economic security strategy. Um, will you take a look at this if you haven't already? Yes, Senator. Um, I've, your staff has shared it with me, and we will take a look at it. Okay. Well, we would welcome the opportunity to work with the administration on, on, on teasing this out. The last thing 
Um, I'd like to very quickly turn to Ms. Singe, um, and I do appreciate your presence here, is um, in the prepared testimony for the second panel uh, that we're going to hear from momentarily, Mr. Bolton notes that Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 62 provides the President of the United States with broad authority to restrict foreign imports for national security purposes. Mr. Bolton asserts that this authority has only been used twice, once to ban oil imports from Iran in 1979, and then a second time in 82 to ban oil imports from Libya. Ms. Singe, as Assistant Secretary of State for Economic and Business Affairs, is it accurate that the authority under this act to restrict foreign imports for national security purposes has previously been used uh, against Iran and Libya? Is that right? Yes, I believe that's correct. Okay. And against which countries is the authority currently being used? Well, Senator, it's not being used against any particular country. It is being used in the case of domestic production. Section 232 indicates that we should give consideration to domestic production needed for projected national defense requirements and the capacity of domestic industries to meet such requirements. So 232 is well, there, being... There's a, I'm sorry to interject, but my time's you know, I'm about a minute over, so and I want to respect the chairman's uh, prerogative to get to the uh, next uh, panel. So I'll just say that um, we know it's been used for um, Ayatollah Khomeini's Iran, Muammar Gaddafi's Libya. There's a strong nexus between uh, strong allies like Canada on one hand and this general threat that you point to uh, uh, with respect to uh, its current usage. So from a foreign policy perspective, um, I see an important distinction between 1979 Iran and Canada today. Let me just go on record. I thank you for your appearance here today and your service. Thank you. Before we move to Senator Cardin, Senator Coons, I would love for you to use your time here in answering these questions to disabuse of us, me, I'm not, I don't want to put anybody else in the same boat with me. I believe the President is abusing his authorities. I think it is a uh, massive abuse of his authorities. And the reason he's using 232 and abusing his authorities in this way is that 232 can be used with no basis. In other words, you don't have to go to the ITC or the World Trade Commission or anything else and prove something out. You can just say that it's in our national security interest. Again, we may move to autos, as I understand it. And again, I have no idea how the making of automobiles um, by others is a national security threat to our nation. So the president doesn't have to lay anything out using 232. We're trying to change that. So the second thing I'd like for you to disabuse me of anyway is there is no strategy. None whatsoever. And I think what's sad is there are people around this nation that are hurting. Uh, farmers are, you know, losing money as they harvest right now. Some of that's got to go across the scales at the time of harvest and if the price is down, they just absolutely lose money. And many of them, unfortunately, have faith that there is a plan, that there's a strategy. Now, I know senators have been up there to meet with him a zillion times, I've not heard a single senator come back with any earthly idea, any earthly idea, cannot articulate a sentence 
as to why we're doing this. So with the rest of the questions, to the extent you can disabuse us and, and inform people across our country that are patiently waiting that there actually is a plan. I happen to believe there absolutely is no plan. And in the mornings, people wake up and make this up as they go along. And if in some uncanny way they figure out a way out of this, that'll be great for our nation. But I know today there is no end goal. And so, um, again, I hope you will disabuse of, of that. And if you're welcome to do that now, if you wish. Well, Senator, if I may, the president is acting within his statutory authority. We have looked at Section 232. There was a very robust interagency process in which the State Department participated, the Treasury Department, every agency of the United States government which has equities in particular areas came together. We talked about this. We talked about the plan. We talked about a strategy. Our goal was to act in the interest of the American economy. And as far as an overall economic strategy, I can lay it out for you right now. The president's strategy has five pillars to it. It's to support our national security. We want to strengthen the domestic U.S. economy. We want to negotiate better trade deals, free, fair, and reciprocal deals. We want to aggressively enforce U.S. trade laws in the interest of the American worker. And as I was indicating to Senator Kane earlier, we want to reform the multilateral trading system. The WTO, if it works properly, can be a great resource for us in our global economic disputes. So the President has very carefully laid out an economic strategy. It is contained within the national security strategy, which is our blueprint for how this administration is operating. That enlightened us in no way, uh, Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker. Um, thank you for calling this hearing, and thank you for what you and the ranking member have done to lead us in what is a united effort to say that, Madam Assistant Secretary, um, you have launched a war. President Trump has launched a trade war without a strategy, and these Trump tariffs are imposing consumer taxes. I'm hearing from folks in Delaware from port workers at the docks who are concerned that shiploads of steel that come to my state in the wintertime from Sweden and from Finland will not be coming, that the costs will be raised, that their jobs will be harmed. I'm hearing from soybean farmers in the southern part of my state that they're facing the lowest price for their crops in a decade. Folks are confused, they are anxious, and they have a concern. And you've just heard it from us on a bipartisan basis that President Trump has launched a trade war without a strategy and without a plan for how to get through this. In your prepared remarks, which you repeated, you said, allies and partners share our frustration in responding to the challenge of China's economic aggression. We are building an international coalition to address China's state-led policies which distort markets, discriminate against international competition, force technology transfer, and permit theft of sensitive intellectual property. Madam Assistant Secretary, if that's what you were doing, I'd be cheering. I'd be saying, what a terrific plan. I only wish this were true, but it's not. In a trip that I just took with the chairman, we visited four of our vital allies in Northern Europe that included Sweden. And in our meetings with national leaders in those four countries, countries that are fighting alongside us in Afghanistan, they are puzzled, they are offended, and they are distanced from us by these tariffs. Swedish steel that should be being imported to Wilmington, Delaware, 
may soon be turned away by tariffs that are dividing us from a country that should be an ally in a appropriate trade contest with China. I just had a meeting yesterday with Senator Isaacson, my good friend from Georgia, where we met with the trade minister of South Africa, a country that has finally opened their markets to our poultry after years of effort that we undertook. And it's clear they're going to slap reciprocal tariffs on us that will harm the poultry farmers of Eastern Shore, Maryland, Eastern Shore, Virginia, Southern Delaware. This is a trade war with real consequences, but without a strategy. And frankly, I, I, I couldn't agree more with the point that Republican Senator Young just made. The Section 232 authority has in the past been used against the real enemies of the United States, against Libya and Iran, not against Canada, Germany, Sweden, South Africa. So, Madam Assistant Secretary, with all due respect, the administration should be on notice that 88 senators yesterday voted to send a strong and clear signal to President Trump that he is misusing his Section 232 authority, and that if you believe what you are accomplishing with these tariffs is supporting our national security, in recent meetings with ministers of foreign affairs, from Sweden to South Africa to Canada, you are in fact harming our national security. If you believe we're gonna negotiate better trade deals by picking fights with all of our best allies, that is not in fact the case. And if you think the outcome will be a reformed WTO, I think instead it will be chaos. I wish the articulated strategy you delivered in your prepared statement was in fact what was happening, but I see the exact opposite. Please, Madam Secretary, in a minute or two, if you could give us some reassurance that President Trump sees as clearly as you do that our goal should be to unite our allies against China's mercantilist policy and is not, in fact, what I see happening, which is a wildly swung bat that is hitting our closest allies in a way that harms our national security, harms our chances at better trade deals, and harms folks in my home state who work at our port and work in our farms. Well, thank you, Senator. I, I can tell you, President Trump is committed to working with our allies. Secretary Pompeo, under the leadership of President Trump, as you know, has been traveling the world seeking support from our allies in order to achieve our goal of a complete, irreversible, verifiable, denuclearized North Korea. We, at all levels of the State Department, are discussing all of these issues of shared interests with our allies, including the China threat. I've had many personal conversations in the Western Hemisphere, in South America, um, in the European Union, in North Asia, all over the world. Everyone agrees that China is a big threat. We are working to combat that threat. Turning back to the 232 issue, I would disagree with you, Senator, that a weakened national economy, weakened steel and aluminum industries, they are a national security threat. I understand Senator Young's point about 232 being used against Iran, who clearly, which is still a problem. You know, Iran is still an issue that we need to deal with. But at the end of the day, 232 is designed to also protect our domestic economic production. It's laid out clearly in the statute. President Trump is acting within his statutory authority. There is a strategy. I laid out for you the five pillars of our economic strategy. As you've indicated in my opening statement, I've laid out for you the State Department's role and the strategy in President Trump's agenda. Thank President you, Ms. Singh. I'm, I'm out of time, and I appreciate your response. But Ms. Singh, um, as Assistant Secretary, 
I hope you will take back the message that while the president may be acting within his statutory authority, he is acting recklessly, he is acting dangerously in a way that is dividing us from our allies and that is imposing consumer taxes on the folks in our country who we most wanted to help. If we don't see a strategy that lines up, I think Congress will act to restrain his reckless use of this authority. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Isaacson. <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, I'll be brief. I know you want to go to the second hearing. I just want to say, uh, Madam Secretary, that uh, the last time you and I were together, I was speaking in, in favor of you to be confirmed by the United States Senate in your current position. I'm glad that you're in the position. I'm sorry you got to sell the program you're selling today, but I'm glad you're in the position you're in. You're doing the best job you can, and I appreciate that. But I would like to say one thing that, about what's being said. I'm reminded of the Wendy's commercial about 20 years ago. Where's the beef? When the little old lady in the Rambler pulls up to the window at McDonald's, <laughs> open, pulls the wrapper off her hamburger and looks at it and says, where's the beef? I mean, that was a great commercial, and they got a good bit of market share from McDonald's because it made a big point. And McDonald's actually changed their product line and increased the number of ounces in their hamburger because of that commercial. That's the power of a good point and a good plan. It is pretty apparent that we don't have a stated plan from a marketing or a business standpoint. And this lady is the chairman, is the secretary for our country and diplomacy in charge of business and economic yeah. issues. Tariffs are a big business and economic issue. And we're going to cause difficulties for our State Department and Secretary Pompeo if we don't have a clear message to sell as what our policy is and a goal is to how to get there. So notwithstanding what's been said, and I appreciate all the comments everybody's made, and I want to say what Governor Kane said also. I'm sitting next to a former trade rep. I was in, in there when Zelik finally took uh, China to the, world, to the, to the uh, world Trade Organization, and we finally got the run on textiles out of the South, stopped when it was really too late. They were almost all gone. We're at that point now where we're going to get in a situation where we're going to have a terrible, be in a terrible negotiating position because we don't have a plan. So uh, with Ron Johnson on our command, Committee always talking about having a plan. Let's get one. So when she goes to the drive-in window and opens the wrapper around the beef, there's plenty of beef there to sell on behalf of the United States and its people. Thank, Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Madam Secretary, in response to Senator Coons, you said that there are many countries around the world that you're visiting that share our concern about China's trade practices, I may have been. and that's understandable. Can you list the countries that that are prepared to join President Trump's strategy as it relates to the tariff issues that he's currently implied? I would have to look through all of my conversations specifically to determine... Can you name one country? Well, there, there are many countries... But can you name one that publicly maybe supports... Probably Russia, wouldn't you think? <laughs> I would agree with the chairman. I'm, can, can you name a country that agrees with what President Trump is doing? Well, Senator, I'm, I'm hesitant to speak for another country, but I can tell you confidently that I've had conversations with many different government officials who share our concerns about China and who agree that we Oh, I have no stop. question about it. I've, I've met with many uh, representative countries that share the concern about what China is doing, but they don't agree with what President Trump is doing. And it's amazing that we have a very strong case against China, but the way that the president has pursued this, he's been, he's been able to give China a free pass because the rest of the world won't join President Trump. Well, Senator, I don't think we're giving China a free pass. We're instituting very strong actions against Universal China. community, we have friends with us 
we'd be in a much stronger position. Let me just, I, I was at that finance committee hearing with Secretary Ross, and I get a different opinion, as the chairman mentioned, as to how the process on the exemptions to the Section 232 process is going on steel and aluminum, 20,000 plus cases. The administration won't let the industry represent small businesses. They have to follow each individual case on their own. Do you imagine the burden on a small company trying to pursue a claim? And they're trying to do business. The, the, the company, for example, that Senator Kane was talking about, they don't have a lot of employees that can pursue a, uh, an exemption issue uh, uh, in order to deal with the, the, the getting an exemption. Uh, so the process is a mess, isn't it, if you're trying to get an exemption? If you're a small business owner and your supply chain depends upon the product coming in without tax tariff, what do you say to that small business owner? Well, Senator, if you have any small business owners that are having problems, I'm happy to connect them to colleagues at the Department of Commerce who can hopefully help them. We have, of course, direct problems of supply chain with those who are subject to the direct tariffs that are imposed. Then we have the retaliatory tariff issues, those that are getting the retaliatory, which is Senator Kane's situation. Chairman Corker mentioned that the administration has announced they're also looking at Section 232 from the point of view of autos, SUVs, vans, trucks, and auto parts. Can you tell us how that interagency discussion is going as to the uh, imposing uh, security tariffs uh, in that industry? Senator, Commerce is still completing that investigation. So the interagency- But you said you have robust interagency discussions. Have they started? On the auto investigation, the Commerce Department is still completing its investigation. So there isn't been, hasn't been any interagency. How much after the Commerce finished its its investigation. When did the, how much time did it take with the interagency discussions before the aluminum and tariff, aluminum and steel tariffs were imposed? All of the agencies have provided input to the White House. How long after Commerce did the initial investigation? When did you all start meeting? I don't, I don't recall the exact time. And how much time was spent? I don't recall. Are there other industries that, there, that commerce that you are aware of or looking at in addition to the auto industries? None that I'm aware of. Let me just, just point out, Mr. Chairman, uh, what many of my committee mem uh, members have already said. In Maryland, I've heard from farmers that have already been impacted, soy crop, et cetera. We've heard from manufacturers. Let me just quote from one. Maryland's independent can company is facing two bad choices according to its CEO. They can move production to China or raise prices and risk losing consumers. Either way, it will cost jobs. That's just one company in my state. I could give you many, many more. And you're not giving us much of a comfort level of a process that's a deliberative process. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for being here. Um, you mentioned that uh, Part of the justification was to have a strengthened economy and the, uh, the rationale for imposing uh, these tariffs. Uh, you mentioned a weakened economy affects our ability basically to provide for the national security. I, I, I'm familiar with some of the literature uh, surrounding 
the, uh, the effects of imposing these tariffs. And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the, the wealth of data out there suggests that there's far, a far bigger impact negatively on our economy by imposing these tariffs uh, because of the knock-on effects in terms of other uh, industries surrounding steel, the used steel and aluminum, uh, than we gain by, I mean, whether it's, uh, you know, 50 jobs saved versus 200 jobs lost, uh, magnified, you know, multiple times. Tell me what data uh, you're relying on to suggest that this will lead to a strengthened economy. Well, Senator, again, there I would refer you to the, uh, Secretary Ross's presentation at the Finance Committee hearing. He talked in detail about the economic analysis of the 232 actions and the conclusions that they arrived at. But aside from his statement, uh, the wealth of data, you're familiar with some of this data. The wealth of data, would you not concede, suggests that this has a detrimental effect on our overall economy. And so if you're using as a rationale uh, a weakened economy doesn't allow us to provide for the national security, putting aside whether or not Canada represents a real threat in terms of its inability to supply us with steel and aluminum dur during some kind of conflict, given the defense arrangements that we have with Canada and the fact that they have never, ever, ever uh, been in a position or wanted to be in a position where they would deny us uh, the ability to mount a national defense. Um, but uh, just on the economy alone, can, are you relying simply on the words of uh, Wilbur Ross here? Because the wealth of data suggests that uh, this will weaken our economy, not strengthen it. Well, Senator, these were interagency conversations. The recommendations of the United States Trade Representative, the Commerce Secretary, other officials all went to the President, and this is the President that this is the decision that the President has made. I understand that's the decision, but I'm just saying, what uh, data does he rely on? Uh, just interagency memos or actual economic figures and historical data that, that we've accumulated uh, for prior actions of this sort. Uh, the wealth of data suggests that this weakens our economy, not strengthens it. You, you dispute that, then? Well, Senator, there are experts at the Department of Commerce who have been there for, for decades. You know, they're not uh, political appointees. They're career folks who have looked at this situation, and this is the information that they've provided. I mean, we have the Treasury Department, the Commerce Department, the United States Trade Representatives, hundreds of economists who have looked at this, and these are the recommendations that they have provided based on the information and perhaps the same data that you've looked at. I would suggest that you really have to use tortured data to come to a conclusion that this is going to strengthen our overall economy. Um, that it's just the data out there uh, affirms uh, in spades that uh, this will lead to a weakened economy. And we're seeing the knock-on effects now uh, with the announcements of, uh, of companies moving offshore now to escape these tariffs. So I, I just... Uh, I, I, can't believe that uh, that with a straight face the administration tries to claim uh, and tries to say simply ignore what we know about the economy and the effect of these kind of tariffs. Thank you, Mr. Thank Chairman. You. Thank you, Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, the North Koreans um, did not 
attend um, a meeting they were scheduled to have with the United States today. And, uh, and it just continues to raise the question as to whether or not the North Koreans are playing games with the United States with regard to their promise to denuclearize, especially in light of the fact that reports indicate that even before the Singapore summit, uh, that uh, China had already increased trade with North Korea. And uh, after Singapore, uh, China also said that uh, they were going to uh, increase trade with North Korea. Now, that clearly undermines our ability um, to be able to extract the concessions from the North Koreans which they had promised to the United States and to the rest of the world. So my question to you is, um, looking at China right now, do you believe that China has increased trade with North Korea over the last couple of months, and especially in the aftermath of the Singapore summit? Senator, thank you for that question. I don't have personal knowledge of Chinese trade with North Korea and if it's increased. So you don't know? I don't know, sir. Yeah. Um, I, again, I, I think that, you know, whenever, you know, we um, listen to the administration when it comes to any subject that relates to uh, China, that there's a an ambiguity that unfortunately uh, is presented from the administration with regard to a lack of knowledge. Uh, but here, um, it's clear that we're not going to get the result which we want from North Korea if China uh, is playing games uh, with, the, um, with the trade sanctions, which they are a part of uh, committing to um, to enforce. Uh, have you ever had a discussion internally within the State Department uh, or in a um, uh, a joint agency uh, panel with regard to toughening the crude oil sanctions uh, against the North Koreans in order to ensure that they understand that there is a commitment that has been made uh, to guarantee that North Korea, in fact, has to fulfill its promises before it receives economic relief? Well, Senator, I'm not sure I'm able to comment um, in an open forum on our sanctions deliberations, but I can tell you that Secretary Pompeo is personally committed to a process that leads to the complete, irreversible, and verifiable denuclearization of North Korea. And that's why I'm asking you the question. If the Chinese are loosening the trade sanctions against North Korea, then complete and irreversible denuclearization becomes less likely, not more likely. So what is the conversation that the State Department is having with the Chinese about this increase in trade? We are talking to all nations about, all nations with an interest in the denuclearization of North Korea. We are having conversations with the Chinese, with others um, in Asia, all over the world. This is in global interest to have um, a denuclear North Korea. So our secretary is committed to having conversations with leaders around the world 
um, about making sure that this process works. Exactly, and what I'm saying is there's no evidence that it's working. In fact, there's evidence that it's not working. Um, you know, and it's pursuant to the Kim family playbook that goes back to his grandfather and his father where they pocket the benefits. Here it would be um, suspension of military maneuvers uh, on the Korean Peninsula, uh, but it w it's in return for concessions made by the North Koreans, but, um, but we don't see any evidence of that yet. They didn't show up at the meeting today, uh, and, um, and it's all part of a long-standing uh, pattern of conduct by the North Koreans going back generations. And, uh, and if, they if, if China is now playing into this, uh, then ultimately the likelihood of them actually making the concessions are very slim. And so I would ask for you to report back to this committee with regard to um, whatever uh, plan the administration has to ensure that China continues to honor its commitment to impose trade sanctions uh, that are enforceable on the North Korean government. And I would ask that request, make that request for you, Mr. Chair, uh, so that we receive that information from the State Department. Thank you. Well, Thank you. Senator, Thank I, can, you. I can tell you that you know, we are committed to engaging China on this issue. We are committed to making sure that they work on this issue. And, and as far as our, our posture in North Korea, of course, as you know, the Sing Singapore summit was historic. A North Korean leader has never met with a U.S. president. So we feel that we have made progress in at least having the conversation with North Korea. I don't see, think the meeting in, in and of itself signifies progress. I think it's a first step. But if there's nothing that follows on and China can, uses uh, the ambiguity of the agreement to increase its trade, then the pressure on North Korea to comply with whatever uh, promises they made is reduced. So if you could report back to us, I would appreciate it. Thank yes, you, Senator. Mr. Chairman. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Secretary Singh, for being here. I appreciated the opportunity to visit with you at the Shangri-La Dialogue to talk about uh, issues that Senator Markey touched upon dealing with North Korea, Asia issues uh, overall. A chance to speak with you about my legislation, the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act that Senator Markey is a, a part of, Senator Kuhn, Senator Kane, uh, Senator Young uh, a part of. Uh, so thank you for that opportunity. I want to follow up a little bit with what uh, Senator Markey is talking about. In January of this year, at least in a Asia realm, uh, in January of this year, China suspended access to Marriott's website uh, uh, with China for referring to Taiwan as a country. It was lifted uh, only after Marriott's chief executive issued a public apology. In April of this year, according to the Chicago Tribune, the Chinese Civil Aviation Administration delivered 36 airline carriers a letter demanding that they immediately stop referring to Taiwan as a part of China. And last month, the Wall Street Journal reported that China rejected official U.S. requests to discuss China's new anti-Taiwan labeling policy for U.S. airlines, including potential action against American Airlines, Delta Airlines, and United Airlines. These actions, uh, there was uh, articles yesterday about uh, the iPhone, that if you had the Taiwan flag in China, your location showed up in China, uh, that your iPhone would lock up if you used the Taiwan flag. In fact, if you look at your iPhone location uh, settings, uh, it doesn't say Taipei, Taiwan, it just says Taipei. Uh, these actions are just the latest from an aggressive Chinese government working to pressure American businesses. It calls into question how the U.S. intends to respond to such threats to commerce. Uh, in this new landscape. What have we been doing and what more can the United States be doing in the Indo-Pacific to counter this kind of pressure campaign and bullying from China? 
Thank you, Senator, for that question. Um, we have been looking at the, the situation that you've indicated but about how Taiwan should be labeled. Um, you may recall that the administration- but It's not just about Taiwan being labeled. I mean, this is about overall- it's a foreign policy, yes, sir. Inappropriate action, yes. It's inappropriate behavior. Uh, uh, absolutely. You'll recall that the administration put out a very strong statement regarding China's directive that airlines change their websites not to reflect Taiwan as a separate country. We've told our airlines that they should do what they think is right, that they are under no obligation to comply with China's directive. We've made this clear to the Chinese government as well, that our businesses will conduct policy they conduct their business um, as they see fit, and that the airline websites, the way that they've listed in Taiwan, listed Taiwan is completely in accordance with U.S. policy. So we've made very strong statements. Um, there is a July 25th deadline, as you may know, for the airlines to comply. Um, we are not sure it, what sort of penalty will be imposed um, against any of our private sector for not complying, but we are prepared to respond appropriately if any damage is done to our U.S. enterprises. And, and to follow up on the lines of discussions on China, and China, uh, I recently brought to my attention a business uh, in Colorado that has had an employee that moved to China from Taiwan. They had a plant in, in Taiwan. Uh, this employee was hired in Taiwan, apparently or allegedly took some information, uh, intellectual property, with them to Taiwan. Uh, they replicated the manufacturing process in Taiwan, uh, in China from Taiwan. Um, they replicated the manufacturing process, stole the information, used the stolen information allegedly, uh, and then the, uh, now a, a, a court in China has accused the U.S. firm of violating copyrights and patents. And so this is just a, 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 a sign of things that we have to work on. I don't like the tariff approach. I want to be clear, there's a letter I'd read to you that talked about 25% uh, cost being passed on to uh, people in, in uh, agriculture buying you know, sweeps and other equipment that they would use in cultivation practices uh, because of the steel tariffs. We do have to do something about China, uh, but I hope that uh, U.S. businesses don't uh, succumb to the bullying pressure uh, that China has uh, pursued. Thank you, Senator, for that. And we in the U.S. government want to make sure that our businesses um, are not bullied. And as an aside, you referred to your ARIA legislation. Um, of course, Secretary Mattis and Secretary Pompeo um, have sent a letter indicating that we welcome the ARIA legislation. It's completely in line with our Indo-Pacific strategy, which is also designed to demonstrate our commitment to the region and, again, China's counter-China's influence there. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Senator Udall. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh Mr. Chairman, and, and let me say that, that um, a group of us from the committee, four of us on this committee, Senator Flake headed up a CODEL, bipartisan CODEL, three Democrats, three Republicans. We went over into the Baltic region and met with leaders from four countries, four countries, and leaders at all level, from presidents to prime ministers to parliamentarians, and, and um, I'm, I'm Sure, um, Chairman Corker's already mentioned this, but they were very, very concerned with where President Trump is going on trade, and then very specifically, a lot of talking about tariffs. And and the discussion went along the lines. I mean, we've been your friends. Now you're you're calling us under this 232 section enemies and the threat to national security. So they they really are are. Uh, they're not happy about this. They don't understand it. They don't. They uh, think that we're headed for a trade war. That this this 
you know, you start and then you don't, it starts spiraling down and nobody has control of it. And so I don't see from anything I've heard today from you what the exit strategy is here, where the, where, what's the end game. Uh, clearly, we have some things that we should be doing on trade, but I, I, uh, uh, I, I really don't see that um, the president's listening. Do you, you have any evidence the president's listening to foreign leaders about what's going on, what they're recommending? Because I think it's almost unanimous that foreign leaders are telling him you know, you're headed in the wrong direction. Is he listening to foreign leaders? It's just a yes or no. Well, well Senator, thank you for the question. I'm, I do think that there is an end game. Um, well, I'm not asking about the end game. I'm asking, is President Trump listening to foreign leaders? President the Trump answer is, to you, is easy answer. Just tell me no. President That's Trump it. has regular conversations with foreign leaders. Yeah, he's not listening to them, ma'am. He's not listening to them. And let me... Um, let me, um, under this, uh, this piece of law here, the Trade Expansion Act requires commerce to consult with the Department of Defense and other agencies making a determination under 232, right? Well, I don't even think the president is listening to his own agencies. Here, here, here is a report where the consultation is going on Secretary Mattis writes to Secretary Ross and says, current domestic capacity, they're talking about the aluminum and the steel like that, you know, that this is some big national security issue, is actually sufficient to meet national defense requirements and that DOD, and this is a direct quote from Secretary Mattis, DOD is concerned that the negative impact on our key allies regarding the recommended options within the commerce reports. So even within the government, the Trump administration, you have agencies speaking out and saying, oh, there are no national security issues here. I mean, this is very, very uh, unusual, I think, what, and, and unprecedented what this administration is doing. Let me just say a quick word about NAFTA, and I know the, the chairman wants to move on, so I'll stay within my time here. But free um, trade agreements that we've negotiated uh, to the benefit of the world's largest corporations and, and their shareholders. I've consistently argued on these free trade agreements that uh, they should do much more, guarantee labor protection, secure commitments to environmental stewardship, and NAFTA is no exception. It entered into force 25 years ago, and I support the effort, and I've talked to Secretary Ross about uh, making sure that uh, we try to improve NAFTA. Actually, Secretary Ross told me, he said it's gonna be done in 90 days. And, he, and that, that was before he took over. He said, we've been working on this for years, be done in 19, 90 days. Here we are today, 17 months later, and there's no end game there. Um, so here, here's a specific example about what's happening with trades in New Mexico and how it's hurting New Mexico under NAFTA. There's a company called Southwest Steel Coil. Almost all of the exports are finished products from the United States, U.S. workers, been down to Mexico. The response to the U.S. actions will be devastating to businesses like this that rely on a production process 
that moves back and forth across the border. Companies will be forced out of business and they will be required to pay a new tariff every step of the way. You're going to put companies out of business in New Mexico with these tariffs. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ms. Singh, on the heels of the NATO summit, let me start by complimenting your boss. I thought that Secretary Pompeo's comments about the importance of the alliance, calling it uh, perhaps the most successful and important military alliance uh, in the history of the world, was uh, appropriate. And uh, I appreciated his speaking out on that. Um, with regard to the issue we have before us today, I think you've heard clearly from some of my colleagues already on the broader issue of concern about what will happen with both increased tariffs and higher costs to our consumers and our companies, uh, but also the impact on our exporters. Uh, let me say that uh, I, I think in response to your questions, respectfully, you should also talk about the vision the President laid out at the G7 summit in June, which was no tariffs. And maybe I was just listening for what I wanted to hear, but what I heard was that there is an ultimate vision here of getting us to a world where both tariff and non-tariff barriers are reduced substantially or even eliminated to the benefit of the economies of countries around the world, including ours. Uh, and I hope that's the ultimate objective here, is to have the United States continue to play the leading role as the country that advocates more open markets, more transparency, less corruption. That's been our historic role over, over the decades. Um, my concern is, and this is from talking not just to our negotiators, but also to people from some of these other countries, including China and including the EU and Canada, that we have not laid out clear, realistic objectives as we take on these countries with regard to China, the 301, the 25 percent tariffs uh, on the 36 billion, another or 34 billion, another 16 billion coming at 25 percent, another 200 billion at 10 percent. And so the Chinese are uh, confused. They're not sure if it is because we want to see them buy more of our products, which was uh, an objective, I think, which was raised with them specifically with regard to soybeans and LNG, liquefied natural gas. They're not sure if it is the structural changes that you talk about in your testimony, uh, including, as you say, stopping their discrimination against international competition, technology transfer, theft of the sense of intellectual property. Uh, they're not sure if it's about steel overcapacity, which for me is a huge issue. Uh, ultimately, what we see around the world is partly a response to China now producing half of the world's steel when they produced probably 15% of it 15 years ago, and therefore having that steel come through transshipment to our country. Uh, they don't know. Uh, I think the same is true with the European Union. Recently, there's been discussion with regard to the 232 case, again, different than the 301, that it's about autos. Well, if it's about autos, we ought to be very clear. And I don't think that 232 is the right tool to use, but to the extent we have these tariffs in place, we need to be clear and, again, realistic in terms of our objectives. Uh, Senator Eisenstein talked about uh, my being in this position to negotiate in the past, and I think it's clear to all people who have been in that position that without having a clear and realistic negotiating objective, and as compared to that sending mixed messages, it's very difficult to get to a solution. So I would I say this to you uh, as 
the representative of the administration is here, knowing you're not uh, in direct negotiations, but maybe you could respond to that. Do our trading partners know what our objectives are with regard to these trade cases that we've initiated? Well, well thank you so much, Senator. Um, when it comes to the 232 steel and aluminum tariffs, uh, we are having many bilateral conversations. As you may know, there are some countries with whom we've come to agreement on quotas. There are other countries where we had a conversation and we were not able to come to agreement. So we are talking to countries very individually and helping them understand what we would like to see achieved. Yeah, and that's an interesting uh, response because it is true with regard to some countries. Um, we have been able to negotiate something. With regard to others, some of our strongest allies, including Canada, Mexico, and the EU, we have not. And again, I'm not sure they, they know. With Canada, we've talked about their dairy program. Uh, by the way, that doesn't fit within the national security criteria, but if that's it, we should be clear. With regard to the EU, you know, we've talked about the auto issue. With regard to Mexico, we've talked about potatoes being able to be sold in the interior or state-owned enterprises, but I'm not sure uh, that they, from what I'm hearing from them, that they understand what the objective is. NAFTA, of course, is the broader issue, but again, not a 232 issue. Mr. Chairman, I see my time is expiring. I would just like to submit for the record some thoughts about 232. Uh, I believe that the entity that is best capable of determining what's in our national security interest is the Department of Defense, and I believe the statute could be changed to do that. I, I believe that there ought to be a tightening of the criteria so we understand what national security is using the CFIUS and Joint, Cha Joint Chiefs definition. I believe that the disapproval, which is already in the legislation, could be brought into all products, not just oil. I think there are things we could do to ensure uh, that going forward that we don't misuse 232 because my concern is we will lose the tool. We will lose it because one of two things will happen. Either other countries will respond in kind, as we're starting to see, without showing injury, without showing any unfair trade, uh, or we'll go back to the WTO as we have been in the past, and this time we will find ourselves losing an Article 21 case with regard to 232 because of the way we've used it so broadly. So thanks, Mr. Chairman, for your indulgence and uh, appreciate your testimony today, Ms. Singh. Thank, Thank you, you, Senator. If I may, when it comes to Canada and Mexico, um, as you've recognized, we are having the broader NAFTA conversation with them. But I just want to assure you that we are having conversations with our allies. As I indicated at the outset, the State Department in particular, um, it is our job, it is our mission to make sure that our allies understand the direction we're going in. Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for being here to, t to talk with us today. I had a couple questions regarding to uh, 232. And you know, I, I'm concerned, just as everyone is, of the impact of the steel and aluminum tariffs on businesses and consumers. But I do think that Section 232 really still has an important role to play in shaping our trade policy, in specifically with strengthening our national security. And, and to that end, I've been actually pushing the administration to launch a separate 232 investigation into uranium imports, because what we've been seeing for years is that uh, uranium producers owned by the government in Russia, in Kazakhstan, in Uzbekistan, they've unfairly flooded our American markets with cheap uranium to the point that today American producers uh, fulfill less than 5% of our U.S. demand for uranium. So our ability to produce uranium is, I believe, critical and crucial to our own energy security. And it's not just energy. I mean, this is a national security issue in terms of, uh, in terms of the uranium and our, and our nuclear power. So I think it's important that the administration actually quickly initiates an investigation into the industry's 232 uh, petition, and that we've been awaiting a response for about six, six months. So, so to that end, I'd ask, you know, in, instead of requiring Congress to weigh in on all 
Section 232 actions. You know, are there some things that we can do to maybe improve this, the 232 process? Because uh, as uh, Senator Portman talked about, perhaps losing it completely. Is, are there things we can do to actually improve the process that won't hamper an administration's ability to protect our national security with regard to trade and with regard to uh, the, the issues of the energy and that I raised with the uranium? Thank you, Senator. Um, I think we, I can, we can take a look at that. I will take that back as far as improving the 232 process. Uh, and do you know anything in terms of the process with regard the, and the timing and things of how things are going with the concerns we've expressed with regard to uranium and the, uh, the Russian flooding, the Russians flooding the market and the national security implications of that? I can get back to you with information on that, Senator. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, and thank you, Ms. Singh, for what you do and in uh, representing the administration here. I hope you'll take back the message that uh, some of the uh, uh, difficulty that's been uh, expressed here is not universally shared by every United States senator. Um, I, uh, I hope that every member of this panel would uh, go back and look at and study the five pillars that you uh, suggested. There's been people say they don't know where we're going here. We have a very, very clear description using those five pillars of where we do want to go here and we're following that. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of criticism about the president uh, arguing with our allies over trade. Um, there's some examples out there that make him very angry and should make him angry. Uh, one of the, it's already been referred to here. We have a partner in the NAFTA agreement called Canada. And Canada's beating their breast over these uh, uh, tariffs that have been put on steel. Uh, Canada is a member of the uh, North American Free Trade uh, Association. Uh, they, uh, they are our ally. They are our friend. They will continue to be. But they put a 247% tariff on dairy products that are produced. Now, we're the third, third largest uh, dairy producer in America behind uh, Wisconsin and California. And so our dairy farmers don't look at it the same way the Canadians do. And it's hard to explain to them how they can be in a free trade zone and wind up with a 247% uh, tariff on their product. Uh, softwood lumber is the, ex is the exact same problem, uh, and it's hard to explain to them how we can uh, uh, be in this position. And these are our friend; these people claim they're our friend and our ally, and they are. But my point is, NAFTA needs uh, some adjustment, and I commend the president for uh, doing all he can to make the adjustments uh, in NAFTA. And uh, he has uh, been very clear that, uh, that he wants to get that done, and uh, we should all support him in that effort to try to do things better than what they are. Uh, trade is complex. There's no question about it. Uh, using tariffs is complex. Uh, but I want to talk about, in the few minutes that I have left here, a, uh, something that's going on with the Chinese. We, I think we're all in agreement that the Chinese are something to be concerned about. Anyone who hasn't studied uh, China's uh, Made in China 2025 plan needs to look at that and actually drill down to see what their uh, objectives are. We have a company called Micron Technology in Idaho. Micron Technology is the second largest uh, employer in the state of Idaho. Uh, they are uh, one of the world's largest producers uh, of memory products. Uh, they had uh, Chinese nationals steal from them uh, patents that they use to produce products. Uh, 
Those people took those to China. They then patented the exact same thing in China. They then turned around and uh, sued Micron in Fujian province. That case is going on today. And a couple weeks ago, uh, a judge in the court in Fujian pro uh, province used the stolen patents uh, to put uh, an injunction against Micron technology from selling products uh, in China. China is a huge producer, of course, of uh, technology products, and it's absolutely critical that Micron sell their products there, and uh, if they don't, uh, it's going to cause them serious problems. So you have, and who sued Micron? A state-owned enterprise in a court in Fujian, which is a state-owned enterprise, and headed by a judge who is employed by the Chinese government. Why would, you, why would Micron think they had a chance under those circumstances? So those of us from Idaho are taking a very serious look at this, and we're going to uh, do some things that uh, are, are probably pretty stringent as far as, Chinese, as far as the Chinese government's concerned, and we have to. This company's very existence depends upon having uh, a rule of law uh, in, in countries where we are doing business. And uh, we, I applaud the president for uh, his... Uh, strong feelings about what the uh, Chinese are doing, uh, what they claim is legally, for instance, uh, requiring uh, Chinese ownership in, in uh, companies that do business there, uh, and uh, uh, getting into their uh, secrets and their patents. But they're also doing things uh, under the table, like I just described as happening to Micron Technology. And this has got to stop. If this doesn't stop, we are going to be in very difficult straits as we go down the uh, pike trying to compete with China with their 2025 plan. Mr. Chairman, I see my time is up. And, uh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Senator Rich, if I can thank you for your comments, and I would like to associate myself with your remarks. Well, thank you. And, and this is on the President's radar screen, by the way. Uh, I know that personally. Uh, but it is something that we're all going to have to pay attention to. And this is just the tip of the iceberg as far as what's coming. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Thanks for holding this hearing, Mr. Chairman, the ranking member. Thank you for being here. It's a complicated issue because it really involves two separate stories. The first is sort of, well, let me back up and say that, you know, we have all, uh, I say there's been a general consensus in American politics and American debate about the value of the global economic order, the rules-based trading system. And, and I do think, while this is a committee that focuses on, on foreign policy, that it is difficult to ignore that while free and open global trade has incredible benefits, it does have downsides. There are losers to trade, even agreements that are great, and not enough attention has been paid to the fact that people have been displaced over 20 or 30, 40 years, and that has created some of the domestic blowback against some of the trade. That said, by and large, America is generally a winner, particularly when we are interacting with countries who follow the rules, and that's where these dispute resolution mechanisms exist and you have a hope that they would work when these countries also happen to be geopolitical allies with whom we partner with on a host of other issues including national security um, I think that wisdom would say that particularly when we talk about the 232 actions and whether it's our partners in the EU Mexico Canada and other places these are ultimately allies and countries that we do have issues that need to be addressed uh, but we can work with them. We believe we can because ultimately none of these nations seek to displace the United States or undermine our position in the world. They do want to get better deals, but there's a mechanism in place to address it, which is why I would have strongly preferred for the president and the administration to kind of dealt with those issues second 
after first focusing on China, because many of those countries that we are allies with have deep concerns about China as well, which leads us to the 301 actions. And the threat from China is perhaps without precedent. Uh, Senator Rich just mentioned a moment ago, Made in China 2025, that is a key piece of a broader plan to displace the United States on virtually every, and at virtually every field that will define the 21st century. And if they were going to displace us because they work harder, because they're more innovative, because they're just out hustle us, that's one thing. That just calls on us to work harder and do better. But the way they seek to displace us is through things like the theft of intellectual property. Just yesterday or a couple days ago, a former employee of Apple was arrested at, this, at an airport in California headed to China with a bunch of secrets and intellectual property on, on uh, Apple's uh, autonomous vehicle technology. Every single day brings stories. We've all heard the horror stories of the forced transfers. You want to do business in China? Here's your new partner. And by the way, you need to teach them everything you do so that in a few years when they can do it as well as you can, we can kick you out and we can be your competitor backed by the Chinese government and put you out of business. Uh, un unfair practices of just outright denying market access but demanding unfettered access to our own market. This needs to be addressed. And so there's a consensus or there's a belief in the business community, well, we should have told China what we were upset about, we should have warned them, and this is what we're going to do if you don't listen. That's the story of the last 20 years. Our relationship with China economically over the last 20 years has been built on the hope that once they became richer, they would behave more like us. And what they've done is they've taken all the benefits of that global order, but assumed none of its responsibilities leading us to this point. I guess my, my only question is, I wonder what role the State Department played or others in advising the administration on a path that would have said, why don't we partner with our allies first so we can all collectively confront China because we are all facing the same challenges, and then secondarily deal with these other issues because of its geopolitical implications. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't also ask related to that, what role of any did the State Department play in advising the administration on its recent decisions regarding ZTE? Because while I would say to you that the penalties imposed on ZTE for violating sanctions are severe for purposes of sanctions violation. They extend well, our issues with ZTE extend well beyond sanctions violations. Any telecommunication company in China uh, is controlled by the Chinese government, whether they want to be or not, and allowing them to embed themselves in the commercial infrastructure of the United States poses a significant national security threat. And there is an irony that while we are out there imposing tariffs for national security on partner countries with whom we have national security arrangements with, we are allowing a foreign telecommunication operator to stay in business with our parts, knowing the threat they pose to our national security. So did the, did the State Department have any role in advising from a geopolitical perspective and focusing on China first? And what role did the State Department play, in, if any, in the decision on ZTE? Thank you, Senator, for those, uh, both of those are very important questions. Uh, the State Department has played and continues to play a role in advising the president on working with our allies to counter China. Um, I previously indicated that in all of my travels, the senior leadership of the State Department, whether it's the Deputy Secretary, Secretary Pompeo himself, who, as you may know, is on a tour of several countries right now, we have explicitly provided input to the White House and said, we need to work with our allies specifically to, to counter China. We need their buy-in, because the only way to have success against China is to isolate them. China needs to be clear that it is a threat to the global economic community. And if our allies agree with us, then we can isolate China and force it to change its behavior. 
Um, on your question regarding ZTE, the State Department did play a role, and we advocated the stiffest penalties possible against ZTE. Mr. Chairman, I just like that. I think it, it's hard to partner up with countries to take on China and isolate China when we're in a trade war with the countries we seek to partner up with. So I, I, that's why I think this is something I hope we can get worked out. I, uh, I couldn't agree more. We've done a great job in unifying the world against us. Senator Booker. You can move to the next panel. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. You can have my time. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being here, and we appreciate your service, mostly in the other areas. And uh, we'll move now to the second panel. Thank you, Chairman Corker. That was the most graceful <laughs> flip I've ever seen. <laughs> All right. We'll now turn to our second panel, and we're, we have a very distinguished uh, witnesses here with us. Our first witness is Joshua Bolton. Mr. Bolton is president and CEO of the Business Roundtable and an association of CEOs of leading U.S. companies that employ more than 16 million people and generate more than seven trillion in annual revenues. Mr. Bolton has an extensive, uh, has had an extensive career serving our nation at the highest levels. He was chief of staff and director of office of OMB to the President George W. Bush, and before that served as general counsel to U.S. trade rep, so certainly uh, has a lot of background in this area. Our second witness is Mr. Michael Fuchs from the Center for American Progress. Mr. Fuchs is a senior fellow at focusing on U.S. foreign policy and priorities and U.S. policy towards the Asia-Pacific region. Mr. Fuchs has previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the East Asian and Pacific Affairs. We thank you both very much for being here, your patience and waiting. Um, and Senator Menendez, I don't know if you want to welcome them. If you go ahead and summarize your comments in about five minutes, any written materials you have will be entered into the record. Um, and with that, if you'd begin, we'd appreciate it. Again, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chairman Corker. Mike. Thank you, Chairman Corker, uh, Senator Menendez, other members of the committee. 
Thank you for holding this hearing and for inviting me to testify on behalf of Business Roundtable. Business Roundtable is an association of chief executive officers of leading U.S. companies. Our CEOs are today overwhelmingly bullish about the American economy, thanks in large part to tax reform and ongoing regulatory reform. Our overriding concern now is that those gains will be entirely reversed by major missteps in U.S. trade policy. The Trump administration is rightly focused on addressing unfair foreign trade practices that hurt American businesses and workers. However, Business Roundtable strongly disagrees with many of the administration's recent actions on trade, particularly invoking national security under Section 232 to impose unilateral unilateral tariffs on imported steel and aluminum. We have four important reasons for opposing this action. First, the 232 tariffs increase costs on American consumers. This multi-billion dollar tax increase on imported steel and aluminum is already driving up the cost of many industrial and consumer products. Second, by driving up the cost of inputs, these tariffs are also causing U.S.-made final products to be less competitive in both domestic and export markets. Third, the 232 tariffs are inviting a cascade of retaliatory tariffs against America's most competitive exports. Overall, a recent study by the Trade Partnership Worldwide found that the administration's steel and aluminum tariffs along with the resulting retaliation, will cause 16 American jobs to be lost for every American steel or aluminum job saved. The Roundtable's fourth reason for opposing the 232 tariffs is the misuse of the 232 statute itself. Um, as several members of the committee have already noted, since its inception in 1962, Section 232 has been invoked only twice before to ban oil imports from Iran and Libya. In both cases, the national security purpose was clear. The national security purpose of restricting steel and aluminum imports from our closest allies is not at all clear. The administration's improper use of Section 232, twisting the definition of national security beyond reason, invites other countries to do the same against a wide range of U.S. exports. Despite these evident harms, the Commerce Department is now investigating whether to employ the same national security argument to restrict imports of autos and auto parts. There is no national security purpose for this, and the damage would be exponentially greater. For these reasons, Business Roundtable strongly supports Chairman Corker's bipartisan bill to require congressional approval of Section 232 tariffs. We would also enthusiastically support other legislative approaches that would similarly advance the goal of preventing the misuse of U.S. trade statutes inappropriately to restrict trade. The administration's deployment and threatened deployment of Section 232 tariffs demonstrates clearly that the statute is susceptible to misuse. It is time for Congress to assert its constitutional prerogative to prevent serious harm to the U.S. economy. A final less direct but no substantial harm from the misuse of Section 232 is that it risks alienating U.S. allies needed to address the real problem in international commerce, Chinese policies and practices. 
Most business roundtable companies have encountered at least one of these serious problems. Intellectual property theft, forced technology transfer, unfair restrictions on access to and investment in Chinese markets, and competing with state-subsidized Chinese companies. Business Roundtable therefore welcomes the administration's focus on China's trade policies. However, the cycle of tariffs and counter-tariffs recently initiated by the administration is dangerously counterproductive. Imposing Section 301 tariffs without first pursuing serious negotiations unnecessarily jeopardizes U.S. farmers, workers, and businesses. Instead of starting negotiation by imposing punitive tariffs on tens or even hundreds of billions of Chinese imports, thereby triggering commensurate retaliation against U.S. exports, the administration should, first, detail clearly to China how its practices must change, second, establish deadlines for China to adopt concrete reforms, and third, describe actions the U.S. will take in coordination with our allies if China fails to address our concerns. Finally, the administration should exempt U.S. allies from 232 tariffs to encourage them to join in this effort. Mr. Chairman, thank you for your leadership in holding this hearing and for encouraging a constructive trade policy that will truly benefit America's workers and businesses. Thank I look you. forward to the committee's questions. Thank you so much for your testimony, Mr. Fuchs. Thank you, Chairman Corker and Senator Menendez, members of the committee. It's an honor to be here today. My written testimony contains my thoughts on this subject, and so here I'd just like to highlight a few points for the committee. First, in order to tackle the global challenges that we face, from Russia to China to climate change and beyond, and to build a strong economy at home, America needs serious, long-term strategies that use all the tools of American power. The current administration's approach to tariffs and trade is undermining U.S. national security. The decisions being made in the capitals of American allies right now, how to cooperate on counterterrorism, whether to fight in, the, in Afghanistan or Syria, how to deter Russia and compete with China, are being influenced by these tariffs. The leaders of these countries are asking themselves, can we trust America anymore? The world does not stand by when we act, and our allies are looking elsewhere for trade deals and for partnerships. Second, driven by a single-minded focus on tariffs and trade deficits, U.S. foreign policy is losing its moral compass right now. The current president has repeatedly berated South Korea over trade while praising the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. And while the president ignores Russia's efforts to undermine democracies and its invasion of Ukraine and tries to avoid sanctioning Russia, he has imposed harsh tariffs on America's closest allies in Europe, countries America relies on to help deter Russian aggression and uphold the values that America holds dear. Third, to build an economy that empowers and provides opportunities for all Americans, we need a comprehensive strategy to level the economic playing field with China. But the recent tariffs instead leave the U.S. economy more vulnerable by alienating friends and allies and creating opportunities for China to work with our own partners against us. These tariff decisions are the policy equivalent of coming to a gunfight and shooting your partners at the same time you take aim at your adversary. We need a targeted strategy crafted in concert with our friends and allies, many of whom are suffering from the same problems from China. Fourth, the United States should see our trade relationships as one aspect of our larger efforts to achieve a strong economy at home and to achieve our national security objectives around the world. 
To do that, I believe the United States should take a number of steps, including strengthening alliances to counter our biggest national security threats, supporting democracy abroad to push back against the rise of illiberalism and autocracy, develop a strategy in concert with our allies to deal with China's unfair economic practices through both bilateral and multilateral actions, and build an economy at home that works for everyone by investing in areas such as infrastructure and education. Congress should also play an important role in holding the administration accountable and in reassuring our allies. Thank you again for inviting me here today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you both for that testimony. Senator Menendez. Thank you both for your, your testimony. Mr. Bolton, I've been contacted by dozens of companies in New Jersey that have been negatively impacted by the administration's tariff and quota policies. One such company, for example, uses a Korean specialty steel product to manufacture a life-saving medical device. But the Section 232 quota on Korean steel could put this third-generation family-owned company out of business. New Jersey could lose over 400 good-paying manufacturing jobs, and hospital and surgery rooms could shut down for certain endoscopic procedures. The supply chain for these medical devices is disrupted. Uh, ultimately, the lives and health of hundreds of thousands of patients nationwide could be at risk. Now, there is no U.S. source for this steel, and even if it were, it could take up to three years to gain FDA approval for its use in medical devices. Uh, so, in cases where imports of steel are subject to the 232 tariff, American companies can obtain relief through exclusion requests when there is little or no U.S. production. However, there's not a similar process for steel products from countries with quotas. So this is one dimension of the challenges that we're having. Given your previous experience at USTR, how would you compare the administration's implementation process to similar efforts of past administrations? Well, Senator, I think it, uh, it compares poorly. Um, the, uh, the use of Section 232 in this case was entirely inappropriate. Um, in previous cases where administrations, including the one I served in, have sought to provide some protection to the steel industry, it's been done through a different process that, uh, that has typically narrowed the scope of the products protected, has required that uh, the International Trade Commission make a finding of injury to that industry, and has typically put the tariffs on for a very limited period in an internationally accepted regime that has not triggered retaliation. All of those things have been absent from the way the administration has approached this, uh, in significant part because they used the wrong statute for it, um, badly undermining uh, the, uh, the rule of law that uh, currently exists around the world, at least some, some understanding of the meaning of national security. Because if, if we have used national security in this way to protect our, in, uh, our steel and aluminum imports, not, not even mentioning autos at this mm -hmm. point, uh, but just even on steel and aluminum, that's an open invitation to other countries to do the same when they want to protect themselves from our exports. Let me ask you, uh, the companies that you represent in the world of international business, how important are predictability, reliability, and consistency when it comes to making deals? Um, that is business, um, to, to, uh, to be able to plan in advance. Most of the members of the business roundtable 
uh, do their planning many years in advance. Supply chains take five, ten years to develop. So the, the transparency and the ability to know what the rules are is critical to the success of business anywhere. You, you mentioned in your, in your first question, Senator, the use of quotas. And uh, the administration witness treated that as though it were a benign success because we're not imposing tariffs. We bullied our trading partners into quotas. I know from talking to several our member companies that those quotas are even more damaging than the tariffs themselves because in some cases they'd be willing to pay the tariff just to get the product that they need in their supply chain to make things work. But with the quota in place, they can't get it at all. So there are companies at the business roundtable that have products sitting on the dock that are desperately needed for, as inputs to a big project. They can't get them because of the quotas. Is it the position of the roundtable that these tariffs are in the national interest? No. Mr. Uh, Fuchs, let, thank you. Let me ask you one quick question. Let me make it generic uh, in nature. Whether we're talking about the Indo-Pacific uh, region and how we uh, try to promote a rule-based order, or whether it's with critical allies like Canada, uh, our impact in Europe, um, what damage uh, does the administration's policy in this regard affect our ability to pursue all of those. And in a tit-for-tat process with China, uh, what's your assessment of the internal politics in China when it comes to tolerating economic costs, and who flinches first? Thank you, Senator. I think that that is an incredibly important question. The impacts of the administration's tariffs right now are widespread, and I believe that if they continue, we're only seeing the very beginnings uh, of them. So first and foremost, for the main challenges that we face in our national security, the threats we face around the world, again, whether it's China in the Indo-Pacific or it's Russia uh, or it's anything else, our allies are our first line of defense. They are our key partners in tackling any of these challenges. But right now, instead of focusing on those challenges, we're making enemies of the very allies that we need to be with us to tackle any of these challenges. And we're seeing those impacts right now in the trade war, frankly, that we are starting with our own best friends around the world. Uh, secondly, I think that what we are seeing here is, and we're only seeing the beginning of it right now as it just starts, in capitals around the world of our allied and our friends, they are making decisions right now. They're planning, just like companies, what kinds of policies and positions that they are going to be taking in the coming months and years when it comes to national security threats. And they right now are asking themselves very clearly, can we trust the United States? I think it's very instructive. Right after the G7 summit debacle just a few weeks ago, the German foreign minister gave a speech in which he listed three main threats that concern him uh, for about the fate of Europe. One is Russia, second is China, and the third is President Trump's America first foreign policy that he's pursuing right now. To me, that is incredibly concerning. Do you have a, just go very quickly, do you have a view on the China question? Who gets, in, in a tit for tat, you know, who blinks? How, what, how much are they willing to endure? Well, I think that we have seen in recent years, and we're seeing right now, I think that the Chinese Communist Party, which again runs China, and we have to remember how China operates here. They are not a democracy. Uh, it is a, dicta a dictatorship run by the Chinese Communist Party. They have one interest, 
and mind, and that is maintaining stability and staying in power. And they do not want to lose face because that helps them, they believe, lose legitimacy. And so I believe that the Chinese Communist Party is highly likely to try to weather any storm uh, and go tit for tat with the United States uh, going forward. Thank you. Thank you. Before turning to Senator Young, um, Mr. Bolton, I, I'm sure you have high-level access to the White House and you, rep you represent some of the titans of industry. Has anyone yet articulated to you uh, the strategy behind using 232 in such a broad way uh, against our allies? They, they have not, Mr. Chairman, and, th and that's, why, that's why we're concerned. Um, I mean, we, from the positions I've served in, I, I understand the politics. Uh, I, understand, I understand the need of, uh, that leaders have of living up to commitments they make in campaign rhetoric. Um, but what the administration has pursued here under 232 and in 301 with China um, has us deeply concerned because there does not appear to be any strategy behind it that is designed to produce an outcome other than just tariffs. And uh, what we would, we are strongly encouraging the administration and are very glad to see many members of Congress encouraging the administration is develop a strategy that can produce success. And success in this case means getting the international community aligned to put pressure on China to reform their trade policies and practices. I agree. Senator Young. It's a great segue, Mr. Chairman, uh, because I'm going to continue to hit the same note I did in the first panel and, and um, uh, same note I've been hitting for a couple of months now with respect to uh, our, our response to predatory international economic practices. We need a strategy, and this is important to Hoosiers. Uh, I really appreciate it, Mr. Bolton, in, in your testimony, you referenced an Indiana-based manufacturer, Cummins Incorporated, major company. Uh, they manufacture diesel and alternative fuel engines, and, and you note that Cummins, on account of uh, what you characterize as an escalating trade war, must now pay a 25% tariff on manufacturing components it imports from China for use in U.S. production. You go on to note that the company is absorbing a 25% U.S. tariff on finished products that it manufactures in China for sale to off-highway equipment manufacturers in the United States. And if Cummins were to pass this tariff-related cost uh, increase to its uh, off-highway customers, it would lose vital sales in the market to European and Asian competitors. So that brings it, it, it right close to home for, for the people I represent. Mr. Bolton, uh, earlier this year, I introduced, along with uh, various other senators on, on both sides of the aisle, uh, some legislation I mentioned in our first panel, uh, uh, the Bipartisan National Economic Security Strategy Act of 2018, S-2757. It would create a statutory requirement for not just this administration, but for future administrations to periodically produce and submit to Congress a national economic security strategy, just as we do a national security strategy. A very sensitive topic, but there's an unclassified version with a classified annex. Members of Congress respectfully engage back and forth, kick the tires of the strategy, and then we sort of move forward together as a country. I just ask you, sir, are you aware of, of the legislation I just referenced? And if so, what are your initial or general impressions of it? Um, Senator Young, the uh, uh we, we are now aware of, of your legislation. We're, we're taking a look at it, so I don't have an official 
business roundtable position for you. Um, but I'll give, a, I'll give a personal view now is it's a good idea. I, I served in administrations where the exercise that the National Security Council goes through on a regular basis to produce a national security strategy uh, is hugely beneficial both to forming priorities within the administration and then holding yourselves accountable for how are you doing against your priorities. Um, and I'm inclined to agree with you that doing the same on the economic front would be enormously beneficial, not just for the Trump administration, but any administration. And Mr. Fuchs, uh, you just earlier indicated that the strategy uh, is an effective component of making sure that we respond optimally uh, to China in particular, their, um, their predatory economic practices. My words, not yours, but I'm going to allow you uh, to explain uh, to me and others why you believe a strategy is needed, sir. Well, thank you, Senator. Um, I am uh, aware of your um, legislation and am closely reviewing it as well. But to your question, um, I absolutely believe that this country needs a coherent and comprehensive strategy that sees the trade aspects uh, in the broader picture um, of how best we can grow the economy here at home in a way that works for all Americans and that protects our international interests and our national security uh, at the same time. Um, so I absolutely believe that a strategy in this uh, regard is necessary and I'm encouraged frankly by some of the efforts that I've seen in Congress for Congress to push uh, the administration uh, to develop such a strategy, especially okay. in this case. Thank you much. I would note that there's a, a real distinction that needs to be made between objectives on one hand and a more rigorous, more thorough and comprehensive strategy developed across different departments of government working with, say, the National Economic Council and National Security Council. Um, some bullet points on, on, on a PowerPoint slide with, with five pillars, frankly, is not a strategy. Um, and you know that. Um, to the extent I have any, uh, there, there's a lot of energy behind that comment. It's just conviction. Um, so um, thank you for your remarks about the importance of a strategy. So Indiana is, is, is not only a major producer of ag products, as it's generally perceived to be. We're also the most manufacturing intensive state in the country and home to major automobile producers. Uh, companies like Toyota and Subaru and Nissan, they employ tens of thousands of Hoosiers. These co companies uh, operate uh, by uh, making sure that their global supply chains go uninterrupted. And Mr. Bolton, in your prepared testimony, you say the administration is now investigating whether to employ the same national security argument to restrict imports of automobiles and auto parts under Section 232. Um, sir, can you describe in more detail what you think would be the consequences of this approach for companies producing automobiles in Indiana and beyond and for American consumers? Um, in a word, disastrous. The, uh, the, the steel and aluminum tariffs are already having a really detrimental effect on a lot of downstream users of steel and aluminum um, that will uh, ripple throughout the economy. Um, now take that and multiply by 10 because the, uh, the, the, the automobile trade in this country is, is much larger. It's, it's in 
you know, we import close to $400 billion per year in autos and auto parts. Now, if those supply chains are disrupted, um, you know, who knows how long it takes to reestablish them. Um, there, there probably aren't ways to, for the companies to get the products they, they need uh, to put into their autos. It just makes the entire industry less competitive putting aside even the fact that of a dramatic price increase, a tax on the American people, um, and the people who will end up paying that tax are the people who can least afford to do it. So um, one of the reasons why we're here testifying so strongly, Mr. Chairman, uh, is not just because of the effect that the use of 232 has had on steel and aluminum tariffs, but the threat to broaden it to a pro uh, products like autos and auto parts would really be devastating to this economy. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Senator Card. Well, thank you both for, for, your, for your testimony. There's a common theme here about having a plan and strategy. Uh, we, we, have not, we don't understand what it is in regards to the, the trade policy, trade actions taken by this administration. But we could say the same thing in regards to so many other areas under this committee's jurisdiction, including North Korea. Um, I've been asked the question, Mr. Chairman, as I go through the halls as to North Korea questions, and I can respond pretty easily by saying I don't know what the administration is doing because they haven't briefed us. So we don't know their strategies. Um, and that presents a problem because, quite frankly, many of us think they don't have one. And it would be very comforting to understand that. The same thing with trade. We had several meetings with the USTR and finance, and we couldn't yet figure out a strategy uh, either one can respond, but I want to go to Mr. Bolton's statement that which you gave, which I thought laid out pretty simplistically what needs to be done. I'll start with China, if I might. The way you, you laid out China's trade practices, I think just about every member of this committee would agree. I think just about every member of Congress would agree that we want to see a change in China's trade policies. But you start off by saying... You need to detail how their current practices must change with a realistic time frame for being able to achieve that. And the last point I'll get to in one minute, working with our allies. So do we have a detailed understanding of where this administration would like to see us end up with China and a time frame that's understandable to achieve that? Have you, has that been shared with either one of you? It has, not, it has not been, uh, Senator Cardin, and, and that's why we're here speaking out about it. We have tried to have that dialogue with the administration. Uh, and by and large, by the way, the administration has been very receptive when uh, our, our, our business community comes in to express concerns and have always given us a good hearing. We feel like we've had a good hearing on these trade issues, but have not, uh, have not broken through on the risks that are being posed by the way the administration is going about it. Now, on the China question, um, there's still time. And, and I believe that if, if Ambassador Lighthizer were here right now, he would say, yes, we have a strategy, and we're, you know, we're working on a negotiating position. Uh, but the anxiety throughout the business community, big and small, is that that strategy is not one that's 
that's coherent and designed to produce success. Success in this case is not having a tit-for-tat trade uh, tariff imposition between us and the Chinese. Success in this case is some reform of Chinese trade policies and practices. There's time for the administration to do that. I'm hopeful they're doing that. We're here speaking out because we don't see evidence that they are. Mr. Fuchs, let me uh, have you focus on this. Um, the complaints against China are global. We're not the only country that has major concern by the way China behaves. The question I asked the, the secretary in the former panel is if she can name even one country that agrees with the Trump strategy to get China to change their practices, and she couldn't even name one country. Do you know of any of our trading partners that believe America's moving in the right strategy direction to get China to change these policies? No, Senator. Um, I believe that there's not one uh, that I can think of. Uh, and in fact, uh, I can only think of countries uh, that believe that we are going in exactly the wrong direction, uh, and for a few reasons, uh, some of which have already come up. Uh, first, I think that the kinds of sanctions, uh, tariffs, excuse me, that we're imposing right now with China in a all-out trade war, basically, are not going to actually solve the specific problems that we have with China. Second of all, we need our allies and partners in order to actually pressure China here. But of course, as we've pointed out uh, earlier here, we are actually making enemies of our partners and our allies uh, instead of actually enlisting them to help us with China. The third uh, issue here is that I'd say we also need to look a little bit beyond the trade space here and to see our broader national security interests uh, as well. When we're going after China right now uh, with uh, uh, over-the-top, uh, across-the-board tariffs on everything, which are going to be counterproductive, we also undermine our own position vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. Right now, we are not helping ourselves as we try to engage in diplomacy to get North Korea to change its behavior for which we need China's help. Right now, we are taking away our own leverage uh, with China um, when it comes to North Korea. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm, I'm just one more point. I'm not going to ask for a response. The Secretary testified about a robust interagency process in regards to the 232 process. And I challenged her on that as to how much time commerce spend and how much interagency, and she couldn't give me any definitive judgment. I understand that there are members of the administration that are open for your meetings, but I question whether there was any input, meaningful input, into this process by the decision maker uh, before these tariffs were, in fact, imposed. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Rubio. Thank you both for being here. Mr. Bolton, I... I as I saw your written testimony, I, uh, I want to sort of the path forward that you outlined um, is one that I think by and large is a consensus, but there's a one point that I would disagree with and I wanted to detail it. Your plan, as I understand it, and many have argued as well, is number one, we need to detail the problems that we have with China, and you've accurately outlined them, the unfair restrictions on access and investment, the IP theft, the forced transfer of technology, subsidies to domestic production and then restricting the digital trade, you know, forcing them to have computing uh, services, uh, facilities located within China. The, the requirement on Apple, for example, to place the cloud there and the like. The second part, of, so you've detailed those right. The second is giving them a deadline to change these things and telling them how we want to see those changes. 
And the third is, and here's a list of things we're going to do if you don't meet it by this deadline. The fourth is working with our allies, and in particular, I would imagine you know, Canada, Mexico, and the EU, which are three of our four largest export markets, by giving them an exemption from the 232 tariffs. And I would agree with all of those pieces, certainly one and four. I agree with the things you've described and as the problems, and I would agree with the fact that we would be in a much stronger position uh, if, uh, if we were working with Canada, Mexico, and the EU. We, we just heard the testimony from the State Department that in every one of these meetings we raised the China issue. But I, I, am, I assure you, I'm confident that it's very difficult to get that message across when these other things are ongoing. The problem that I have is with you giving them the deadline, and this is what we're going to do, and, and we're going to have a serious negotiation. Number one, the, the history of serious negotiations with China on matters such as this is not promising. Um, by and large, they've shown a propensity to sort of try to get us to accept symbolic measures in exchange for uh, nothing, really. I mean, in exchange for us getting walking away from whatever it is we're threatening to do. But, but here's the bigger problem, and that is that on two of these items, which are the ones the President's memorandum in March focused on, um, IP theft and, and in some ways forced technology transfer, I think there's an argument, a very strong argument to be made that what China's doing on that now is a clear and very serious national security threat to the United States. These are acts, in my opinion, of direct economic aggression, not simply for purposes of economic prosperity, but to displace the United States supplant us in the world uh, as, as a dominant power in many of these fields. And when you combine that with what they've outlined in China 2025, which interestingly they are now seeking to not talk about as much anymore, but it is most clearly the design they have in place. When you combine that with statements that have been made by uh, President Xi about how there can only be two suns in the universe and implying that there can only be one great power in the world and it's going to be us. When you combine it with all these other factors, this is not just a conflict that we have here with a nation that simply seeks to have a bigger economy. They, they want to supplant us in all of these critical fields. I don't know if, we, if you see some of the technology that's being stolen and, and transferred. Some of the stuff becomes irreversible. As an example, any, change, any gains they make in 5G technology, if they establish supremacy in 5G, which they're on the path to doing potentially, all of the technologies and industries of the 21st century dependent upon 5G will be built to Chinese standards, meaning we will now be out, out of place in regards to that if they dominate biotechnology and the like. And so it seems like the biggest issue you have with the administration's approach on China is that we're not working with our allies under 232, which I agree, we would be stronger, but that they, didn't, that they took the actions first, as opposed to giving them a moment to, is that an accurate assessment? I mean, your biggest complaint is we didn't, we should, we could do these things, but first we should have given serious negotiations a chance to work. Yeah, that, that's roughly it. But I agree with everything you just said. And uh, were I the negotiator, I would put at the top of the list exactly the issues you mentioned on intellectual property theft, technology transfer, and subsidies in, in critical industries. I would put those at the top of the list, and I would, I would, uh, I would make uh, clear what the consequences for the Chinese would be uh, if, if they don't change their policies or practices. But I would also put on paper, here's what we want you to do. Here are the specific policies we want you to adopt. One thing that almost everybody that's uh, in the business community that has interacted with the Chinese government, and, and uh, I imagine members of the, uh, this committee have had a similar experience, 
um, finds that when they talk to folks in the Chinese government, the Chinese government says, well, what do you want? Tell us what you want. And waving our hands and saying, we, we want the, all of these problems fixed immediately, that, uh, that's true and that would be great, but we need to give the Chinese a coherent and practical list of the stuff we want them to do, put it on paper, you don't have to show it to those of us in the private sector. It's probably confidential. It ought to be shared with you so that you know what's on the priority list of the administration. It ought to be possible to write it down. And the administration ought to put that piece of paper on the, on the table in front of the Chinese before they just jump off and announce huge retaliation. Well, my last question, Mr. Chairman, because I'm out of time, is assuming they just refuse to do anything, would the list of things that we would threaten to do include the things that are being done now on, under the memorandum and the actions the president has taken? Uh, they could. Um, I mean, the, you know, the 301 authority is, is an operation outside the, inter, the rules of the WTO. So is, has, so is stealing intellectual property. So is stealing intellectual property, and the WTO does not provide adequate protections for, for intellectual property. And we, we ought to pursue our rights under the WTO where we have them. WTO doesn't provide enough rights. So we in the, we in the business roundtable are not ruling out the possibility of the administration using authorities uh, it's, it's statutory authorities that are not sanctioned by the WTO, but they ought to be a, a last resort, not a first. <clears throat> I want to thank for that last interchange. I, I think that actually Congress and the world, except for China, <coughs> would be unified around our efforts if we focused on the things that you and Senator Rubio just laid out. I, I don't think there'd be any dissension whatsoever in Congress It'd be very difficult to find a witness that would counter an effort that was solely focused on intellectual property theft, subsidizing state-owned enterprises, that type of thing. And, um, and that's what's interesting about this is there is a problem that does need to be solved. <clears throat> and if you dealt with it in a coherent way with your friends around the world, you could solve that problem. Let me ask you this question. You alluded to understanding politics. You were in the White House, and you understand that people make statements during a campaign. We've been getting some signals that, hey, you know, your 232 effort, is there any way you guys would wait until after the election? And then there's been other statements made by the administration about, well, we're going to wait and deal with NAFTA after the election. And I don't know uh, what's driving this. Again, it's so incoherent, it'd be difficult to even uh, begin to understand what's driving the policy that is in place today. But let's say that this policy is 100% about politics. And this is really about the midterm elections and that really <clears throat> the NAFTA issue will be dealt with after the elections, the tariff issues currently that we're dealing with will be dealt with after the elections. The auto car, the auto industry tariffs will be dealt with after the election. So let's just say that this policy that we now have that cannot be articulated, that lacks coherency, were to stay in place between now and the first Tuesday in November, what would be the effect, if you will, on the business community and, 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 the, and, and just our relationships around the world? A lot of damage is being caused every day. <coughs> Bear in mind, we're only a few weeks into the first phases of the steel and aluminum tariffs. 
we're only in, in the first few days of the retaliation that has been put in place against those tariffs. There's more to come, uh, even on the steel and aluminum side, much less the auto side. Um, so significant damage is being done every day. I have heard people in the administration say, you know, oh, okay, but don't worry. It's going to get resolved. It'll just take a little time. Everybody needs to absorb a little pain in the short run. The pain in the short run is, is not small to begin with. It's getting larger by the day. And the additional measures that the administration is now threatening threaten to exponentially increase that. And it, it's not a situation from the business standpoint where, okay, we suffer a little bit of damage today, but everything's okay two weeks from now. When you disrupt supply chains, when you, when you demonstrate that we are an unreliable trading partner, uh, you lose those relationships permanently. When you, when you stop selling to a customer, Har Harley-Davidson is faced with a choice of, uh, of either um, stopping selling in Europe because they are the, the subject now of retaliation from Europe, or building their Harleys for Europe someplace else in order to send them into, the, into Europe without a 25% tariff. That's a, that's a terrible Hobson's choice for Harley-Davidson to make. But I think they're making the right one by, by going someplace else to sell into Europe because once they stop selling in Har uh, Harleys in Europe, even for a few months, they may be knocked out of that market permanently. So the damage is incremental day by day, but no one should assume that that incremental damage doesn't last a whole lot longer than the, than the trade dispute does. Thank you. You want to say something? Yes, um, I would just uh, fully agree with uh, Mr. Bolton, and I would say that for our relationships around the world and our alliances and our national security, the, without a doubt, the longer this goes on, the worse it is. Uh, there are reports in the recent weeks that in anticipation of a China-EU summit that's happening next week, China has been pitching our European allies on, an ant on forging an anti-U.S. trade alliance. I mean, just stop to think about that for a second, right? Now, for the moment, it sounds like the Europeans are not uh, game for it, but if this continues to go on for months and months and longer, um, I wonder how long they will hold out. Yeah. I, I, you know, wonder what we'd be discussing today if we'd continued along the path of negotiating TPP, continued along the path of negotiating TTIP. Um, we'd be having a whole different kind of conversation and be in a much better place to counter um, the real threat, which is what China is doing. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker. And, um, thank you for your clear-eyed and determined leadership on this issue. And uh, Mr. Bolton, if I might, um, it's terrific to have your um, clear and forceful testimony today. Let me just take a few minutes, if I could, and make sure I've understood it correctly. Uh, you've testified that uh, Trump's tariffs are a tax hike on American businesses and consumers. Is that right? Correct. Uh, you've testified that it hurts American companies by making our products less competitive. It leads to lower revenue, lost profits, and fewer jobs. Correct. Uh, and you say that it invites harmful, retaliatory tariffs from um, many of our allies. In fact, I think you called it a cascade of retaliatory tariffs that could cost us 16 jobs for every job that we might protect. And that's just with this early round of tariffs for steel and aluminum. Correct. And you anticipate a dramatically greater impact if the administration does indeed go ahead with another $200 billion in tariffs, correct? Correct. And last, you view this as a misuse of the president's statutory authority under Section 232, and you urge congressional action. Yes. 
You're a Republican, are you not, sir? I am. A former chief of staff to the last Republican president? Yes. And the head of an organization known for its leftist and radical views, the Business Roundtable? <laughs> we, are, we are a bipartisan organization that, uh, that advocates in support of a strong U.S. economy and, uh, all and tries joking, to work with both parties in achieving that. All joking aside, Mr. Bolton, I, I just think it is striking uh, that someone of your experience and pedigree and representing the organization you do uh, is so forceful in asking for congressional action, something I can't remember uh, when uh, a BRT president came before us and urged congressional action against a sitting Republican president. Um, how does this end? How does this end? You were here for the previous round of questioning where we had the current assistant secretary from the administration, and questioners, Republican and Democrat, asked for, demanded a strategy, more clarification. Where's the off-ramp? When does this stop? And as I said in questioning Assistant Secretary Singh, I'm hearing from dock workers in Wilmington, Delaware, who know that shiploads of steel from Sweden and Finland may not be coming this winter, that we may face a loss of revenue and employment in our Wilmington uh, dockyards, and from farmers downstate, our soybean farmers, folks who were, generally speaking, pretty strong supporters of the Trump agenda are now concerned that they're facing the lowest prices for their commodity in a decade. And this is just the first round. If I understand your testimony correctly, it's gonna be very difficult to reverse this. It's gonna have significant unintended consequences. And it's Americans who are gonna pay increased taxes, whether it's an increased tariff burden as consumers of products or as employees of companies that will be less competitive. In your view, how urgent is it that we take action and how does this end? Well, uh, we're here speaking out so strongly because we're concerned uh, about exactly the things you've mentioned. You know, it, it's, uh, it's not necessarily a comfortable thing for the head of the business roundtable to uh, come forward and speak out against an administration that has been um, so effective for American business on issues like taxes and regulation and uh, workforce training and skilling. Uh, on all of those issues, we've cooperated tremendously well with the administration, and I think the results are showing up in a strong economy and very strong business optimism. Um, so it's, it's a difficult thing for the head of this organization to come forward and speak out so strongly against the administration's trade policies, um, but we believe they, uh, they are headed in a very dangerous direction. Now, as I said in the response to uh, questions about China, I think there is time to put it on a constructive path. The administration may be in the process of pulling together a, a serious negotiating agenda with the Chinese uh, that will produce, that could easily at this moment produce significant reforms uh, in China. Um, the question is, are they prepared to do so? And are they prepared to uh, remove some of the impediments that they put in, the, in place of having all of our friends and allies support us because the likelihood of success with China is, is dramatically improved if we get the rest of the world, which basically agrees with us, behind our negotiating strategy. So I don't know how it ends. I, it can, this story can have a good ending, but there's relatively little time to point it in that direction. What I hear you saying is that it is urgent 
that the Trump administration reverse course in terms of broadly imposing tariffs on our closest and most vital allies that will have very negative consequences in my home state of Delaware, from farmers downstate to dock workers in Wilmington, and instead focus on building a team of allies to confront China's real aggressive actions that have undermined global trade, and that if we don't act soon, the consequences will be large, they will be lasting, they will undermine our alliances and our national security, and they will harm American competitiveness and jobs. That strikes me as a pretty urgent call to action. And I appreciate your testimony today, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate the chance to work with you on what is an important agenda for America. Thank you. Thank you so much. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I thank you both for the opportunity to uh, to have you before the committee today to hear your expertise and wisdom for this committee. And I know uh, you both probably had uh, at least uh, some time to watch the previous panel and some of the questions that were asked. So thank you for, for being with us still. Um, I wanted to follow up, uh, Mr. Bolton, on some of the questions that I asked to uh, Secretary Singh uh, about China's actions and activities. Um, you know, as, as I mentioned to, in the question to her, uh, in January of this year, China suspended access to Marriott's website um, for referring to Taiwan as a country. Uh, this blockage was lifted only after Marriott's chief executive issued a public apology. You heard me say that. Uh, we now know that China is going after U.S. airlines uh, for a potential action because they referred to, didn't refer to Taiwan as part of China. Uh, I worry about what they're trying to do to U.S. companies. And then, and then I mentioned Micron, and I know Senator Risch mentioned Micron. This is the case of a company, a U.S. company, that had a, a facility in Taiwan. Uh, the Taiwan employee was hired by a, uh, a company in China, and when I met with the foreign minister in Taiwan, they said China is doing more and more of this. They are hiring people uh, from Taiwan, trying to brain drain Taiwan, take it and take their intellectual property with them, if they can get away with it, uh, to China. Uh, and in this case, this individual gave apparently a lot of uh, uh, information to China. They set up a facility and plant uh, replicating what Micron had done. Uh, they went to court. They got a court injunction. Uh, and uh, now a U.S. idea is being stopped by China, claiming it's their own completely stolen information. There's a company in my, uh, in my state of Colorado that sold a... A, a product to China uh, that sent uh, the product to China. A couple weeks later, got the schematics back from China, reverse engineered the product. This company in China that they'd sold the equipment to had a couple questions for the company in Colorado that manufactured it. The name of the new company in China, though, was the exact same name of the company in Colorado. And so with this airline activity, with the Marriott activity, um, should we, what should we be doing to help make sure that uh, American, air, American air, airlines, uh, uh, American hotels, American businesses overall aren't falling uh, for the bullying of Chinese sort of public di diplomatic berating? Uh, countering the uh, uh, Chinese bullying of American companies is, is, is one of the most difficult problems. The, the kinds of problems you describe, for example, with Micron, those are happening throughout the member companies, uh, the, the 200 member companies of the Business Roundtable. They, they wisely don't talk about it publicly very much because the bullying will, will get worse if they raise their heads above the parapet. 
Um, but uh, almost everybody that deals in high technology and is either trying to do business in or competing with Chinese entities has faced some, seri- some similar serious kinds of problems. That's what needs to be at the top of a serious negotiating agenda. And we ought to be able to write down what specifically it is that we, we are uh, demanding that the Chinese do uh, and have that negotiation. Not an easy negotiation. The Chinese are not easy to deal with. They, they will stretch us out, as Senator Rubio was suggesting, over long periods and give only partial concessions and so on. That's been the history of negotiations with China. But that's the road that has to be traveled. That is the tough work of trade diplomacy. Uh, and we're here to call on the administration to do it. Well, and I, I just hope uh, to, to these companies that are being bullied that they won't fall, they won't fall for it. Uh, that these airlines won't fall for it, uh, because if they fall for it, they'll be soon subject to the same kind of uh, antics that Micron has found themselves subject to. Uh, they can remove, uh, uh, they can follow what China wants to do when it comes to Taiwan on their website, but pretty soon they may find other kinds of activities that they're also subject to in China, because they have allowed that kind of corruption, that kind of bullying, that kind of um, lawlessness uh, to occur when it comes to intellectual property rights, when it comes to uh, standards of trade, when it comes to uh, how they are uh, acting in response to, uh, uh, how they're not acting uh, in accordance with the standards uh, that, that we hope all people are living up to. So uh, thank you both for the opportunity to be here today and uh, to have your testimony. Thank you. Thank you. We thank you both for being here and for your patience. We. Uh, for some reason, have a protocol in this committee where we have administration witnesses come in and then uh, panelists like yourselves. And unfortunately, uh, by the time it gets to the to the real intellect, if you will, uh, most people are gone. Uh, but we uh, again, we thank you both for spending time to be here. There will be uh, some questions after. Uh, we're going to ask for questions to come in before the close of business Friday. And to the extent you could get to those fairly quickly, we'd appreciate it. But you've added a lot. Uh, both to the record, but also to people's thinking. We thank you both for what you do in your respective roles to help shape policy, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Meeting's adjourned.